I'm taking it a little easy tonight. It's just Guinness for me tonight. Last night, um, my rum and limeades just kept magically refilling. And you got and you got toasted. See, I didn't because uh, I didn't drink at all last night. It's both explicit and subtle at the yes. same time. Hello, this is Max and Jason watch a movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And tonight we will be reviewing Misery. Directed by the meathead there, Rob Reiner. Starring James Caan, Kathy Bates, Francis Sternhagen, Richard Farnsworth, Lauren Bacall, Graham Jarvis, and J.T. Walsh. And that is pretty much the entire cast. He was released in late 1990. Do you have any production notes? Anything that, that stands out for you? Rob Reiner, who uh, some of us who are older remember, who played Michael Stivick in All in the Family. That was a deep uh, cut, by the way, the meathead comment. That was that was taking our listeners back to the early 80s, right? Oh, or early late 70s. 70s. Early, what, really? early, early really? 70s. Yeah, really? uh, All in the Family uh, debuted in 71. Wow. I had no now, idea. It was... Now, it was still on the air in the early 80s, but it yeah. was called Archie's Place, and a lot of the principals, except for Carol O'Connor, were gone. But Rob Reiner got his start on that, one of the groundbreaking shows in television. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Rob Reiner as a director. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, beginning in the 80s, uh, he began a, frankly, incredible career as a director. His first film was This Is Spinal Tap. Yes. Which uh, is is a classic. And really, and, and the one thing, Max and I, uh, listeners, that we talked about just earlier today was the amazing winning streak Rob Reiner had uh, just right out of the gate uh, when he began making films uh, all the way, including this film and a little bit past it. But Rob Reiner had um, I don't know if he still does, but uh, uh, his production company is Castle Rock Entertainment, which has made numerous films. Of course, all of his films are through Castle Rock Entertainment. But the, the production is Andrew Scheinman, who was a co-producer, a, a partner for him for Castle Rock Entertainment, had read Misery and recommended it to Rob Reiner, who had already done a Stephen King adaptation. And Rob Reiner asked William Goldman to write a treatment and screenplay for the film. William Goldman had written The Princess Bride, which is another film that I mean, he'd written the novel, but um, but uh, a writer that that uh, Reiner had already worked with. I know that he worked with Reiner again on, uh, I want to say Good Men, maybe? Okay. But he knew Goldman, and he asked him to come, and, and Goldman wrote the screenplay based on another novelist's work, which was Stephen King. Really, a lot of the production is very straightforward. I do know in some of the research that I did that Warren Beatty was very involved at a certain point. Oh, really? To the extent that actually I, I, I saw somewhere that they even considered giving him a credit because he was originally supposed to play Paul Sheldon. Well, that's weird. I, I was wondering if you were going to say that he also wanted to play Wilkes because so many people wanted to play Annie. Oh, so you're talking about the people that wanted to play Annie Wilkes, which I guess... I, I don't know. It, it might be a, a little like the uh, the the drive to play Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, 1939. But the character of Paul Sheldon was offered to almost every heavy hitter. Really? At the at the time, yeah, they offered it to Harrison Ford and Michael Douglas and Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, like almost everybody in the late 80s, early 90s who would have been considered 
a heavy hitter. They offered it to them and they all turned it down. Wow. Um, Warren Beatty was fairly involved for a while okay. and actually had a lot of input, which Reiner, I guess, credited later that Beatty had a lot of input that, that they kept, but he didn't want to play such a character. So, but, but, so this is the interesting story about this is that you have all these actors who were offered this role. They all turned it down and they ended up turning to James Caan, yeah. who, who quite frankly hadn't done much. And, and actually I only, I only learned in my research that he had actually kind of retired in the early to mid eighties from acting altogether. Okay. This was not his comeback. Uh, he did a couple things before this, like alien nation, yes. which might, which might be a blast from the past. I mean, how long has it been since I thought about that movie? But Well, I but, think about it every time an inferior science fiction movie comes out because it always steals the alien the shots from that, that movie. <laughs> Okay, okay, yeah. So James Caan kind of in the late 80s had this kind of slow comeback. And and I and probably this film, and I guess that'll come out in our discussion, is kind of completion of his comeback. But what's really interesting to me is that there were all these actors that were offered this role and he got it. But actually one of the things that I didn't know about James Caan, who, who I know about, I mean, a lot of the films earlier in his career I love. He's most famous for uh, playing Sonny Corleone in The Godfather and briefly in The Godfather Part Two. He's in my my personal favorite Western of all time, El Dorado, as one of his early roles, which oh, he's right, right, right. absolutely spectacular in. One of the things that I've learned is that James Caan, uh, uh, he's also famous for playing in Brian's song, one of the first, it's considered one of the first great TV movies. But one of the things I didn't know is that James Caan turned down a lot of really meaty roles in the 70s. Uh, he turned down The French Connection. Whoa. He turned down One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He turned down Close Encounters of the Third Time. He turned down Kramer versus Kramer, and he was tapped by Francis Ford Coppola, who does love him, for Apocalypse Now, and he didn't want to shoot in the jungle, and he turned that down. Um, he turned down Blade Runner. He turned down Love Story, and he was even, I think we might have even mentioned this, maybe we didn't, in our Superman podcast, he was considered for Superman. Didn't want to wear the cape. He would not have been right for the role, Yeah, yeah. but James Caan, who I think actually is a really, really good actor, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, turned down a lot of shit that he should not have turned down. Wow. And I think, and I think it's kind of a neat story that I want to kind of lead with that this movie was turned down by everybody and James Caan was kind of the guy who they settled on. That's that's kind of interesting. There's a nice there's a nice symmetry to that. But you're right, J James Caan is a solid actor. I don't know what possessed him to turn down French Connection or there were some other movies that you mentioned. Um, 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 now we have to assume who he was going to play. Yeah. He, he totally could have done Richard Dreyfuss his role in Close Encounters of the Third oh, yeah. Kind. Assuming that's what his role would have been, I don't know that, but I, I could see him in that role easily. Oh, absolutely. Now, he was and the only person who was tapped to be in Apocalypse Now who admitted they had no desire to be in a jungle-themed movie because the rest of the cast didn't want to be there either. Martin Sheen <laughs> so much that he faked a heart attack and fucked off to Hawaii for a few months. And, of course, Marlon Brando, notorious, notoriously didn't want to be there and wouldn't read the script. And most of the actors in that film felt the same way James Caan did. He was the one who just said, no, I don't want to do it. Well, but you know, the thing is, and I think that the mistake that he made is that James Caan in the set, he was a very bankable act. I think he has a lot of charisma. He has a lot of screen presence. Yep. I think he's great. Now, I, I would have said he was underused, but I think that's his fault. But here, you were just talking about some of the big films that he's been in and how he could be very charismatic. In Misery, he has to play under his co-star a bit. Yes, yes. And he does that really, really well. That's why he picked it. He, he, he wanted the challenge of playing a past 
massive role, which is why Warren Beatty turned it down. Ah, ah. Yeah. Well, I mean, audience, if you haven't seen the film, uh, our hero spends a lot of the movie in bed. Yes. They could have got Brando to do it. He would have, oh, I'll just be in bed all the time. I'll do this movie. Uh, sorry, I almost called Jason to spit his gin out there. So those are, so you just talked about a bunch of people who turned the film down. A lot of people seem to want to be in the movie. Barbara Streisand, Mary Tyler Moore wanted to play Annie Wilkes, but the book was so popular. And now, now think about this for a second, though. If you are a, a, a female actor, this role has to just be something you want because how many, Annie has as much screen time as James Caan does in this movie. And has a lot to do. There's she a, lot, a lot, of, lot to do. There's a lot of complexity. Look, both of these people, James Caan and Kathy Bates in this movie, they both have to do quite a bit. It's true. Now, James Caan just has to lay there, but there's a lot in his responses that he has to emote to kind of to kind of dr- bring us into his experience of I'm afraid, but I need to pretend that I'm not afraid. It's it, it's not that there's no acting involved for him. Yeah. Oh no, no. There's, act- there's actually quite a bit. Now, I, I I just have to say, you've intrigued me. I would have loved to see Mary Tyler Moore. Was, me too. I really would have. Like because um you know she 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 had her start in 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 Dick Van Dyke right. Sidebar, The Dick Van Dyke Show was created by Carl Reiner, the father of Rob Reiner. Little trivia note, fun fact. Do with it what you will. So endeth the sidebar. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, she's yeah, yeah. And, yeah. in Mary Tyler Moore show. And like, she yeah. is, it would have been, to cast her would have been like casting Henry Fonda in the Italian Westerns as the bad guy. Which was done and was done well. And it works. And now, because the thing is with Mary, and oh, I don't want to get off on a, uh, go down a rabbit hole here, but Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People, which I don't know if you've ever seen, it was the best picture winner in um, 1980. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. It, was, it was a book we had to read in high school. Okay. Well, I didn't, but, but I mean, uh, I, I I, I did see the movie a couple years ago and Mary Tyler Moore plays a very unsympathetic mother. Yeah. And she she's great in it. She is. She is great. I, I, oh, so you've seen it. I would have liked to see her in this role. I'm, I'm not complaining. I, I'm oh. quite happy with, with I'm more than happy with Kathy Bates, but yeah. But here's here's just a list of some actor, actresses who were involved. Angelica Houston was offered the role, but she had to turn it down because she was making a movie called The Grifters. Which well, she could have done that, but a little too obvious, actually. I, a little too obvious, yeah. Bette Midler turned down the role uh, because she thought it was too violent. She later, She's not wrong. I, you know, she could have done it. Oh, she could have done it. She could have yeah. done it. And two people who were in the running, I mentioned Barbara Streisand earlier, another one, who, uh, an actress who we've mentioned before, Jessica Lange in yeah. our King Kong discussion. She was she was in the running for a little bit. She, but like yeah. a lot of women wanted these roles, this role, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense, I think just because of the paucity of great roles for women in the at the time. Oh, well, yes. I mean, there's no doubt about that but I also think in and what Kathy Bates shows when you watch this movie is just every second every millisecond of screen time playing this character requires you to inhabit the character oh yeah and and there are so few roles in my mind that really require that yeah but this but this one does because one of the things and I mean god we're getting ahead of ourselves but one of the things that 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 Reiner chooses to do is to beautifully use close-ups to really give us I think a kind of an eagle-eye view or you know, a point a, a point of view, Paul Sheldon looking at this face yes. and seeing the emotions that are coming out of it, which is is in itself frightening. And Kathy Bates, she inhabits those emotions so perfectly that those close-ups almost serve to make 
us believe that we're the ones in the bed. And that's one of the things about this film that is so effective. You know what? I used to think Jonathan Demme's use of close-ups was in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. was super original and groundbreaking and unnerving. That came out in 1991. Mm-hmm. My question now is, in my head, did Jonathan Demme take the lessons from this film and apply it to Silence of the Lambs with its use of... Un- the use of close-ups in this film and in Silence of the Lambs is pretty uncommon. What do you do? You have an idea about this? Well, I mean, you're catching me off guard, but it's a great point. It's a great point. It's a great point. It's a great point. I think I would say that I agree with you. I would I would caution both of them. I mean, I mean, I I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I'm trying to think of something Hitchcock might have done that they were both drawing from. Mm-hmm. But that's you know to say that no one does this oh but by the way Hitchcock did it yeah. 30 40 years ago that's that's not a bad thing yeah. Because Hitchcock did use close-ups. He was very interested in the psychology of passionate responses of, yeah. of murderers and serial killers. Not serial killers necessarily, but in every film. But but people who were up to no good. I, I guess that I would suggest that maybe Hitchcock's the one that we need to kind of go back to. Turns out Jason was spot on. His knowledge of Hitchcock uh, really, really scored well here. Rob Reiner did, as it turned out, consult Hitchcock films exhaustively in the preparation for this film and while shooting. So Jason is bang on point here. It was Rob, Re- Rob Reiner looked to Hitchcock, and if Jonathan Demme looked to Rob Reiner, he was, by proxy, looking to Hitchcock as well. Uh, so into the sidebar. But, but, but in the 80s, in the 80s, you know, how many films can you point to that have something like that? Yeah, I I, I would agree with you. I, I would say that that what Reiner did here was perfect, but he didn't get the Oscar. Jonathan Demme got the Oscar. It's true. Next year. true. Yeah. Uh, and, and well deserved. Yes, yes, yes. That brings us up to, we've already um, mentioned that it was quite a successful movie because we just mentioned that it won the Oscar. Kathy Bates wins the Oscar this year. For Best Actress. Yeah. And, and again, well deserved. So let me apply the break. So listeners, Max and I, both love Stephen King. Max's love for Stephen King uh, is as the blazing sun, and, and, and mine is as the taper light. As I'm, I'm channeling Frederick Douglass. Um, but I, I did see. I, I know Stephen King loved this movie. Yeah. He said it was one of his favorite adaptations of his work. But I could not find anywhere that he said that it was his favorite adaptation. Do you have any idea what his favorite film adaptation of his work actually was? That I don't know. It's a. Uh, it's not Maximum Overdrive, which is his least favorite Stephen King film of all time, which he directed by. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Sidebar. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Stephen King apparently said that his favorite adaptation of one of his works to the big screen was another film by Rob Reiner. It was Stand By Me, which he thought captured the essence and character of that novella perfectly. So into the sidebar. Some things you don't want to see the source material jettison too much. But sometimes with with other source material, like with comic books, you have 75, sometimes 80 years of story that you can't, you have to do an interpretation of that work. Very true. Um, With something like Lord of the Rings, maybe you want to see as much of that source material make it to the big screen. This will come come up again at the end of this podcast, this topic. So let's jump into the film. Mm -hmm. And the film is about a writer named Paul Sheldon. Hold on hold on let me back up this is something i fucking wanted to talk about and i wrote it in my goddamn notes when i watched this show the mgm logo was period correct yeah jason made a lot of heavy weather about 
period correct logos on films uh, in our last podcast, Enter the Dragon. And I, were you appreciative of the grainy MGM lion? I was, yes. And the the roar that, I mean, it looked like it still was, was in the 70s, this logo, a little bit, like late 70s, maybe 81, 82. But I was happy to see that. I was happy to see that. Um, it wasn't the new Amazon MGM logo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But well, okay. uh, Which for new films is fine. Absolutely. I, you know, yeah, yeah. So it's got the period correct logo. Great. The film opens with a very writerly thing going on. Paul Sheldon, our hero of the movie, is finishing up his latest novel and he's performing the rituals and he's about to leave to take his novel to New York. Jason, where does he where does he do his writing? Colorado. Yeah. This is one of the few Stephen King stories that don't start somewhere in Maine. It's true. True. Uh, but and uh, it's all good stuff. James Kahn is 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 very effective as as a writer. He has a ritual. He has a glass of champagne, a single cigarette. Well, I mean, um, uh, in terms of cinematography, let's linger for just a moment. Just yeah, a moment. yes, let's let's close up of cigarette yep. and match. Close up of empty champagne glass. Yes, that's it. No, no exposition. No, no. The, the camera tells us what we need to know. Yes, and and and, and I think, quite frankly, it, it it is not difficult to figure out just from those close ups of those objects. Yes, that this is a ritual. Yes, and, and this will and this will come in. This will be explained in dialogue later. Yes, but this is this is great. It is. It is. Does he call his agent? I can't remember before he leaves the the hotel or he stays. I no, he does not. We get some. Uh, I believe we get some flashback. Yeah. Well, that's something that the film does too, pretty nicely, because the film early on it goes from Paul in the present, flashing back to his discussions with his agent, played uh, by Lauren Bacall, was what I meant to say, but what I said was. Vanessa Redgrave, who also would have been a great Annie Wilkes. Not Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, is that a joke? It's Lauren Bacall. Sorry. Discovered, discovered by the great Howard Hawks. Oh my God. Sh- uh, shame uh, on you. Don't I, edit that out. I will not edit that out. That was, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, uh, the spirit I'll, of Humphrey Bogart is going to curse you. I'll be visited by his ghost tonight for sure. <laughs> anyway, Lauren Bacall would have made a great Annie Wilkes, I think, in this. Mm, mm. But she plays she plays James Conn's editor. And it's through this, this stuff that we see what has happened in Paul's life. He has been lucky enough to write character that everybody loves and wants more novels of. This is sort of the, the, bench, uh, the benchmark that a lot of authors shoot for. They want a character that can sustain a franchise because it's a great way to make a lot of money. And he's lucked into that. Not lucked into it. He's a good writer. And his character is Misery Chastain, right? Yes. And she has Vanessa Redgrave will tell Paul uh, 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 of course I mean Lauren Bacall. As, as Bacall will tell him, you know, don't beat don't beat yourself up over this, Paul. This character pays for your pool, it pays for your country club, it pays for your kids college, dental, all this stuff. But Paul is tired of writing Misery, much the way a lot of authors who discover these kinds kinds of cash cows get tired of them. Paul isn't the first person to decide, you know, the best way to get out from under this character, I'll kill them off. Yeah. He's killed off his character. And now he, and in the flashback, he says, I'm going to go write something better. I'm going to go write something new for me. And that's this uh, gritty novel of the street. They don't talk about that exactly what the novel's about in the movie. In the, in the book misery, it's a, it's a very kind of vulgar novel of life in, I think, inner city New York. Oh, okay. Right. But you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stand up for for the script here because I mean uh, you've you've read the novel yes yes and actually I don't know if we've mentioned that listeners I have not I have never read Misery Max read Misery in about two minutes when <laughs> we were young and loved it and and is obsessed with it but as a non-reader of the novel what you 
just said. I, I got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now this is going to happen later. This is going to happen when when Annie uh, reads his manuscript and doesn't like it. Yeah. But I I, I got that. And, and actually, yeah, yeah. I think that's you know that's part of why this script is really really brilliant because it, it didn't have to linger on the fact that okay this guy grew up in the inner city, yeah. very poor. Uh, he stumbled upon this character, made a boatload of money, and now he's done with that. And now he wants to write something about himself, about his experience, which, you know, at a certain point in his life, he didn't think was valuable because uh, it was misery Chastain that people wanted, not him. Now he wants to see if his experience is something that people uh, will resonate with. And he's very excited about writing this. So the movie, the, the script does not linger. No, no. That. It doesn't beat us over the head with it. But I got all of that just from the few lines, or excuse me, the exchange that he has later. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I got I got all of no, I, I I didn't mean that necessarily as a criticism. Um, because I think this is I I think this is all very efficient. It's efficiently retelling a lot of what happens in the novel in in a form that has to be abbreviated. Like you can't take everything from a book that is close to four hundred pages long and fit it into two hour movie if this is even that long. Yeah, um, I think it's a little less. But how do you how do you read the book in two minutes? How did that happen? It was uh six hours or seven hours. It was an afternoon, guys. <laughs> Pretty impressive how quickly I read this book, by the way. And Jason is making light of that because I made this this Vanessa Redgrave error, and I'm going to be putting up with his. I, I have the upper hand. Yes, I'm going to have to put up with his back talk the whole episode. But this film is 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 two hours and fifteen minutes. You can't you can't get four hundred pages in that. I don't think so. So, but I think I think that I think that it does do this all very efficiently. And the film itself is just generally really efficient, but in a way that doesn't sacrifice. I don't you know depth of storytelling. I don't think. I think that it's very effective but you're right we get that this is a ritual we get that paul has completed his task he puts his this is a nice little touch too lots of close-ups like you say but lots of texture the the valise that he puts his manuscript in is aged it is old he's yeah. had that bag with him forever we know that you know he's very protective of it as he's leaving the the whole drive uh driving in what mm -hmm. yes this driving? was the other thing i wanted to i wanted to touch on so while while i am this the knower of the deep stephen king lore mostly jason is a Mustang fan. And here we have a pretty glorious Mustang, I think. Absolutely. And and for listeners, I, I currently live in Michigan and I no longer own a Mustang. This is new to me. No, I, I, I do not. Why do I not own a Mustang? Mustangs are not good on snow. No. Oh. And, and this film, in that sense, is very realistic. Yes, yes. Now, I remember I remember a few years ago, you went off the road on some black ice in your Mustang, if memory serves. I did. I, I, I did several 360s and took out a mailbox of a prestigious lawyer. And um, what? yeah, I, I did. This really happened. And uh, luckily, he was a nice guy and uh, just bought him a new mailbox. And uh, it's actually the only accident I've ever, ever been in my life. Yep. I, I, I pondered. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know. No, maybe Mustangs are summer cars up here in Michigan. And our hero, Paul Sheldon, is about to discover the same thing. Yes. In his defense, he's not going fast down these roads. He's not, and it's not snowing when he leaves. That's true. I think I think uh, one of the neat things about this is that uh, the snow comes in pretty quick, as it might be one to do in Colorado. And we see kind of Paul Sheldon getting increasingly nervous as he's driving down the road. As the, snow, as the intensity of the snow picks up and his windshield wipers are less and less able 
able to keep up with the snow. And of course he goes off the road, has a pretty terrible tumble down the right. down the road. And the snow is really coming in fast, but there's somebody there to save him. And this person pulls him out of the car and takes him away. The credits are really are, are really well done. They follow right from the scene that we described where he just finished his manuscript. And so all of the credits occur while he's driving down these winding roads. And as he's driving, you know, the, 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 you know, uh, the snow increases. Our anxiety as a viewer increases. And, and that, then he... That will, that will continue for the rest of the movie. Yes, it will. This is a movie of, of high anxiety. But he is rescued. He comes to in a bed and he meets this lady who is, is very excited to meet him and informs him, I think, pretty quickly. I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. We get this as he's kind of coming out of the haze of concussion or drugs, I'm not sure which. The film is already starting to add elements of uneasiness with Annie. It's not overpowering yet. It's not in your face yet. Because if you go, I, I imagine if you went into this film in 1990, as I did, you already knew Annie was the problem in the film. The, 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 the trailer had let you know that. But the reveal that's happening here, and it's kind of glorious, the reveal is to Paul. And each interaction he has with her helps him to realize that he's in enormously deep shit. It, this, it this, takes this, him. This one isn't the first. This 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 reaction. Of course, he's two days to pick up anything, but we're kind of seeing it, and he'll see more and more of it. Initially, all he sees is that there's this woman who, who tells him that she's a registered nurse, which is which is true. Yes, there's yes. lots of things that she'll tell him that are not true, but she she had been trained as a nurse, and she tells him you know what his injuries are, and she's going to take care of him, and she tells him that. Um, the phone lines are down. Um, you know, the roads are not plowed. Yes. There's no way to get him to a hospital, but she knows what she's doing and she's already situated she said, his, yeah. She said his legs. Does she reveal his legs to him just yet in the scene? I think she does. And they look, I mean, I mean. Oh, I know. So, as, as the viewer, we are like, ooh, this oh, was this, a very serious accident. I hadn't seen this movie for a few years. And when she's like, your legs are pretty busted up, but I, I said them, you know, best I could. I've only got what I've got here, you know. She rolls the blankets back so that Paul can see his legs and he with us recoils from the legs. I mean, his legs look so bad. They the do. Swollen, oh, it's it's grisly. It's almost as if it, the lower part of his body was the body of the toxic Avenger. Look that up. Yeah. People, because they're so lumpy and just um, and he's in an enormous amount of pain and Annie's just showing off her handiwork. She's she's kind of insensitive to the cues of other people, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, and, 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 and I guess, you know, this is a small thing, but this should be said because I mean, look, this is an older movie. I mean, this movie's thirty years old, thirty-one years old. Uh, you know, effects can throw people out of a movie. This is good makeup. I mean, it, oh. it, it is actually hard to look at. All the while she's talking to Paul, she keeps jutting in this uh, this "I'm your number one fan" comment, which I thought was interesting. And I think that's the first vignette we get with Annie, and he kind of passes out. He she gives him some pills, he passes out, and then what happens next? Yeah, well, well I mean, um, he passes out because she. You know, she gives him pills, and it's kind of established. And and I like how the film does this. It establishes because she tells him, "Yeah, you know, I'm a nurse." Yes, and and she's not lying. That part of it is true. He's helpless. He yes. he actually has no choice but to trust her. Absolutely. And and we're a little bit unnerved, but there's also this kind of interesting thing in the movie. 
movie about medical trust yes. that I, I'm I'm not capable of taking care of myself. I'm ill or injured and I need somebody else to take care of me. They're promising to do so. I'm going to do what they tell me. Yes. And at this point of the film, Paul is willing to do that as anyone would be. Absolutely. As the film goes on, he will become less in his, deep, deep in his heart or in his mind. Yeah. He will, he will be less willing to do so, but he will also realize that his ability to refuse to trust her will diminish and diminish and diminish. Yeah. At this point, he does trust her. Um, she has found his manuscript in the... She takes the bag with him. That's the first thing that she, she picks that up at, at the yeah. wreck, which, you know, when I first saw it, I didn't think much about it. Like, it didn't register to me how odd that was. If you're a person who is just rescuing somebody out of the goodness of your heart, that's probably something you don't bother with. But she reveals later she knew exactly who was in the car before she approached. Yes, yes. It didn't register to me then, like, as a viewer, that, that that's, a, that's a really odd behavior. But of course, it, with Annie, it's something that you would predict, knowing well, who she, she is. Well, she's been watching him. Yes. She well, knew that he was there. She knew that he was writing. Yeah. She's, she, um, yeah, in this pre-internet age, yeah. she's, she kind of pseudo-stalks him. Not, not terribly. Like, she doesn't go to New York. Yeah, yeah. But she knows... She knows where he writes. Um, she, uh, she knows his habits. And she just happens to live close by. And so when he's there writing, she's watching him. How involved is she in his accident? I would say not at all. She just, she knew, she knew it was going to happen. That she maybe. Knew- I wonder if he hadn't had the accident, would she have manufactured the accident? Like, would she have run him off the road? She is Johnny on the spot with the rescue. She was there when the car went over. The, I, I think she had to have been. She was watching. She was. She was not pseudo stalking. I, I, I want to say that she was absolutely just stalking him. I wonder, and this is just uh, as this was this this watching, if she wasn't there to either force the accident herself or, like you said, just expected something bad to happen that day. I don't know. Just I just want to put it out there to you. Well, I mean, she's not really a nurse anymore. No, she's no. she's been in a scandalous way. Yeah. She's been kind of excised from the from the profession yes. for reasons that Paul will find out later. Yes, and yes. we and we will find out later. And that's that's one of the great things about this movie is yes. that is that things are just kind of it's like the layers of an onion that just that, that just continuously get peeled off. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that, that, that was something that I noticed a lot about this film. The film pays out its reveals carefully and yes. in a way that pulls us in deeper and deeper as viewers, I think. And I think that even if you haven't read the book, Misery, which you hadn't, um, the film is enthralling be- because of the way Rob Reiner is sort of hypnotizing us deeper and deeper into the into the piece. He keeps giving us little hints about Annie. Paul gets little hints about how dangerous his situation is in each little vignette with each little interaction with Annie. You were you were just bringing up how she pseudo tries to butter him up. Oh, Paul, I just, I just, I noticed you had your brown bag i know you put all your manuscripts in there do you think oh i couldn't ask this i couldn't ask this do you think you would like to read my manuscript and she's like oh do you think i could and he's like well it's pretty pretty uh small company there you know my editor uh my publisher and of course the woman who pulls me out of a car and that's how she gets to do that and this is still in paul's trust phase he's in trust phase she's already in manipulation phase she's already she's already treating him like an object to be to be moved around yeah like everything 
else in her house. Yes, there's that. Yeah. There's so much that we can talk about about this. Yeah. But I, I don't know if this is when Paul starts to realize she's weird um, or, or, or realize that she's not the kind of fan he would normally like to in, in, interact with. She, she's the kind she's the kind of personality disorder that um, oftentimes people do not recognize what's really going on until there is a dramatic moment where it comes out. And the dramatic moment in this case is when she reads the manuscript. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. We've talked about interests that Jason and I have and areas of quote-unquote expertise that we have. Jason is actually a mental health worker. How good, how accurate do you think Annie is portrayed as a person with some kind of clear personality disorders, mental illness? Because I, as I was watching this today, one of the things that struck me about Annie is that she's not like some king baddies. She's not evil. She's disturbed. I would uh, I would channel Mark Twain and say uh, mainly the truth with some stretchers. I, I actually think that for people who for people who are very desperate for attention and desperate for a certain type of gratification, they are going to focus all of their mental energy into creating a certain presentation. And the only way that that could could be interrupted is if their actual um, their actual needs, which are are very disorganized, are suddenly thwarted. And in this case, her image of him is thwarted because the manuscript that she reads has nothing to do with what she needs him to be. Yes. I think that's all very accurate because actually anybody that has met somebody who has any kind of personality impairment yeah. has probably had this experience of it's kind of it's kind of a slap in the face, a, a, a burst of cold air, rug pulled out from under you, kind of like, who the hell are you? Yeah. What? I, you know, I didn't expect this. I think that part of it is accurate. Now, now a lot of the specific events that occur are Stephen King yeah, yeah. entertaining us. Well, so she gets to read the manuscript and she's quite excited about it. It's not about her favorite character, Misery Chastain. And she broaches the subject with Paul as they're eating in another vignette. And she was like uh, talking to Paul. And this is Paul's first kind of talking to the editor moment. Because she's like, he, he, she's like, well, about your novel. And he's like, you don't like it? And she's like, well, who am I to judge? And she, again, that manipulation, right? But he's like, well, you know, tell me what you think. I, I can, you know, I can take it. It's fine. And and he's very much a writer looking for feedback. Yes. That's that's the, he has that, he, he has that interaction with her a few times, which I think is kind of interesting. But she gives him some shit about the cussing. So real quick, and then I'll address what you you're saying because actually we do have to back up oh, I do okay. believe this is the second time this scene that you're talking about and the scene before the scene before begins I believe if I remember correctly with Annie shaving with yeah. a straight razor and, and and nothing happens nothing you know nothing dramatic happens but it's a very close shave and and we Paul doesn't know this yet but we are a little unnerved yes. about this then we have another scene then we go to the scene that you're talking about and if I'm not mistaken when she's talking about his manuscript she's feeding him tomato soup yes and yes, so yes. so we have two straight scenes one where she's shaving him with a metal object and the next where she's feeding him with a metal spoon yeah and you said about how Annie treats all of the things in her house as objects yes and I think that those two cuts those two edits yeah those two directoral decisions demonstrate to us not to Paul yet no but to us and to those who are, and by the way, at this point, with the score, with with everything that's been set up, as you said, with the trailer, we know something's wrong. 
anybody watching this movie knows something's wrong. These scenes are not just a woman shaving a man or a woman feeding a man tomato soup. We know there's something more. And so these scenes, even for the person who, who comes into this film cold, they're going to look at these scenes and they're going to see what I'm saying, that she sees Paul as an instrument. Yes, yes. Uh, to, to gratify her, ultimately. Yes. Uh, this is the first moment where Paul starts to see the chinks in the facade she's been showing him, right? It, she, she flips out. Yeah. She loses because her composure. It's a great It's a great moment where, where, where she's like, she complains about the language and Paul says, well, you know, I mean, these are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. And she gets really mad. And she goes on a rant about like how she doesn't go around saying cuss words all the time. And at the same time, she's shaking the soup and it's spilling onto the bed. And Paul is yes. realizing what well, I, and Paul is having that reaction that you talked about. Like this person is flipped and he's kind of backing up a little bit because, well, because what he said shouldn't have stimulated that reaction. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that's the first sign that, well, this is a weird lady. It's not that it's not, it wouldn't necessarily push somebody in Paul's situation to think, well, I'm in a lot of trouble, but, but this is the, this is a nice moment for the audience because what we've been waiting for is the reveal of the real Annie, yes. you know? And, and, and this is, this is kind of where that happens now, but it's also one of the cool things that you have to tell me if this is in the novel as well. Well, one of the things the script does, she criticizes the foul language of his manuscript and Annie, Annie doesn't use that language for now. For now. And we'll get to that later. But I, I, I liked that. I liked the kind of phony, gee whiz, holy shucks kind of language that Annie would use. Yeah. yeah. At, the, at this point, when she's still trying to present this facade, I liked that. No, I. she did speak this way in the novel. Okay, okay. Uh, that was sort of the kind of thing that that, that starts to tip Paul off that, that there's something wrong. Because she behaves in a way, especially when she introduces him to the pig later on, and she's almost like a young child sometimes. Yes, yes. And her, her mannerisms, I think, imply a certain innocence that she would like to have. Yes. But that she doesn't have, you know. But anyway, she flips out on Paul. She spills tomato juice. And she kind of backs up a little bit. She is overstepped. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. So Annie regularly, regularly knits together narratives about what's happening. Yes. And she is always the put upon person. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. She cleans it up and, and she apologizes to Paul such that she such that she's capable of. She leaves. This isn't the first. She doesn't have her first kind of fugish moment, does she? She has some moments in the film where she kind of like she has like a flattened affect and she doesn't like betray a lot of emotion. That doesn't happen here yet, does it? I no, think. it does not. I, I think the film saves all of that yeah. for later, which is again a brilliant move because we haven't seen that yet. And when we do, and when Paul does, we're like, oh shit, there's even more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no, there's no bottom to this crazy. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's 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 go back to Buster for a second. Buster's gotten a call from the agent, and we get our first. This is the other major character in the film, Sheriff Buster. For for me, in the book and in this movie, this is a pure Stephen King character. He's a character that you get developed, and that as an audience member, as a reader, you fret about for the rest of the the movie or novel because you like Buster. Uh, he is an extraordinary likable character. Actually, I think I think maybe even twenty five years ago, yeah, you and I had a conversation. 
conversation and I would go and I would go with it now that you kind of get the sense that Buster Buster was born to work for the FBI but he grew up in this small town in Colorado and he just wanted to be the sheriff and marry this woman and settle down and his mind is very alive to clues and to figuring out people he's very adept at at just just figuring out puzzles yeah 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 and and um, so even though he's the the sheriff and and the chief of police and I think he has several roles yes 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 um, yeah now I, I do want to say he's not unhappy not even a little bit he, he's not he's not dissatisfied with his life choices however his 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 abilities yes. are far beyond this small town yeah because he has an instinct for when things are wrong yeah. that just won't quit uh, he's married to Virginia um, and actually now now that we're talking about Buster and we will talk about Buster again but but I want to create a thread here okay that I only noticed this time and 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 folks I have seen I, I had seen this movie years ago and I just watched it again but but I want to create a thread here one of the things I noticed this time was the relationship between Buster and Virginia okay um Virginia uh, is Buster's wife and she is the we have to assume unpaid secretary jack of all trades deputy for the sheriff's for the sheriff's office yep. and we can also assume that Buster and Virginia don't often have much to do. When we meet her, she's taking a call from a local business and she says, well, I don't know where the sheriff is. I think he's out having an affair. And 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 then the sheriff gets on. And the sheriff comes in and says, hey, Virginia. And she hands him the phone. Bob wants to know who you're having an affair with. And he he laughs and then takes takes his this, this guy's complaint. And the complaint is this. Somebody's sitting on a bench outside his business. That's the, that's the level of trauma this town regularly deals with. Yeah, uh, kind of like Amity, uh, Amity Island in Jaws, where yes. the kids from the karate school are karateing the picket fences. <laughs> um, one of the things that I noticed, and this is really, I, I think this is really cool. You just pointed out that Virginia says, oh, I think he's having an affair. Um, she's not serious about that because um, she's she's very committed to helping him yep. do his job. Uh, she, he's very committed to doing his job and being her partner. She's committed to being his partner they're a really good team and a, and a lot of that shit that you're saying is just them is, is kind of their just kind of their their banter well one of the things you get from their vignettes and they, they're not long but they're great um is that this is an enormously happy couple yes no no but yes yes you're totally right now i want to build on that because actually i almost think and you'll have to tell me if the novel does this yeah or maybe or maybe we'll both have to reread it or you'll have to reread it and i'll read first time it's almost like a contrast because Virgi- because Virginia expresses jealousy she expresses he's never fucking here you know he's probably out with somebody yeah. but she's not possessive yeah. it's, it's it's almost like a joke it's almost like this is where we are you know this is our life I'm happy in my life he's happy in his life gone I don't really know what he's doing I know he's not really doing something you know it's almost a joke but at the same time these are two people that are very comfortable in their own skins yeah, yeah. they're very comfortable in what they're doing Virginia as she says she would like to be in bed with the sheriff instead of you know doing this or that but she also she never interferes with what Buster is good at she never interferes with his instincts and his ability to do his job he doesn't get disturbed by her accusate by her joking accusation 
But then we move over and we see this other relationship where Annie is constantly telling Paul that she loves him, but almost nothing, almost nothing in their exchanges with each other has anything to do with anything that Paul actually wants. Yeah. I would like to know now if that was some kind of an intentional juxtaposition between Annie and Paul and Virginia and Buster. I hadn't thought of it. Um, And I don't remember how much detail it goes in in the novel. But what I like about that couple is that they 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 are very honest with one another. They yes. they enjoy they enjoy giving each other a little bit of a hard time, you know, cuz after she after he hangs up with that guy who is like uh mad because people sit on the benches that he put out in front of his building. He uh Buster says, "You know, we have a pretty good marriage, but and this this sarcasm that you always give me must must be the spice of it all." But I get I get the sense that they have this like you said banter back and forth. They're very happy and they they're comfortable giving each other a little bit of a hard time. There's a lot of equality. Yes. Because 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 you're quite right. I mean, I mean, th- th- there's there's this banter, but but neither one of them are dominating the other. But you're right. They're great. They're great counterpoint to what we see elsewhere in the book. Um, but Buster is a great character. Virginia is too. Um, but but Buster is sort of the focus of the town reaction. You know, Buster very quickly has an idea what what might have happened to Paul after he gets the call from uh, Lauren Bacall. He says, "Well, when was that blizzard?" He asked Virginia, "When when?" when the blizzard was and he and his wife go well not while they're driving while they're driving she's a deputy Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they, they they drive the road that Paul would have had to have dro- driven the previous Tuesday on the on the blizzard day. And Buster's got eagle eyes. You're right. Uh, this is the other thing I didn't think about until you brought it up. Buster's still sharp, and probably when he looks in the mirror, he probably wonders what happened to the guy there because like his mind is still sharp. But see, and, he's and you know, old, and, and, he's older. Now, you know, I I I like what you just said, but I don't know if I agree with it because I don't know if he wonders where that guy went until he actually because he and his he and his wife they do find something suspicious he finds an area that he wants to check out it's full of snow and he goes down it and he he can't do it no no he can't do it he can't get through the snow i think it's only at that moment that he gets really frustrated because his body can no longer do what his mind knows you know his mind leads him in a certain direction and his body cannot respond no because the snow is too deep too soft and he keeps sinking down and he sinks to his waist and and Virginia's like, do you need some help? <laughs> and he's like, no, I just like hanging out down here, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And as he's going back up the hill, we in the audience know what's going to happen, but that's okay. The camera pans down a little bit and we see one of those Mustang wheels jutting out of the snow. The sheriff's instincts are right. He was yes. almost there before anybody else. One of the things I also like about Buster is this kind of matter of factness about things. And she's like, uh, do you think Paul's down there? And he's like, well, if he is, he's dead uh, yeah. so let's hope that you know somebody got him but he doesn't think that would have happened he doesn't think that's exactly what would have happened either because he also later on will say well no that I'm sorry JT Walsh's state trooper will say if somebody had found him they would have taken him to the hospital yeah um, JT Walsh who you know an actor that any of us would kind of know I mean he died I think kind of young but yep. um, but uh, yeah it was kind of weird to see him in this very kind of brief yeah. role as the uh, state trooper but yeah uh, he's in it very briefly so Buster on the trail nobody else 
is. A lot of people think that Paul probably is dead. They they just want to move on. Yeah, he's dead. He, he froze somewhere. It's it's over. Yeah, and then we come back to Annie messing up. We get another vignette. Paul. We get a couple more vignettes, and Paul's asking about well, when the phone, when the phone's going to be back up. And Annie goes out and comes back in from town with the latest copy of Misery. I think it's yeah. Misery's Child. Yep. And she's ecstatic. And uh, and Paul says, oh, so the roads are open. And she says, well, just the, she's caught right here. And she has to kind of come up with some fictions that will placate Paul because Paul wants to call his agent, daughter. wants to call his daughter. And his agent, yeah. And uh, his daughter. It's her well, birthday. This, yeah, this provokes one of the early, uh, another outburst from Annie when Annie keeps wanting to talk about how great it is that 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 uh, he's, she's got the new book and how 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 she can't wait to read it. Paul is voicing his concerns. Oh God, it's my daughter's birthday and I didn't get to call her. And when Annie realizes that that Paul isn't going to jump on board with her about how great it is that she's going to read the new Misery book, she just leaves. And I, I, I thought that was very revealing of her character. I, I, going back to some of the stuff that you talked about, like with, with sometimes with people like Annie, if you're not interested in exactly what they're interested in, exactly when they're interested in it, they don't have time for you. Right. And she doesn't have any time for Paul worries she she and at no point does she ever really genuinely comfort paul she's like well you know look the the roads will be up soon and uh she makes up a lot of bad lies that i think paul sort of lets him makes himself believe or allows himself to let go because he's as you said there's nothing he can do there's nothing he can do but that's another moment where we see that 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 facade is breaking and she's not quite great at it she she slowly reads the book she provides him updates on on i'm on page such and such and yes, yes, yes. I, know, I can't wait for this. I can't wait for that. And yeah, I mean, he's a little unnerved, but at the same time, his legs are slowly getting better. And eventually, when the legs are better, she's going to let me go. And this will all. And he doesn't think that, that, I mean, even though she might be a little weird, I don't think he necessarily thinks that, that it's going to reach the levels that it's going to reach. She finishes the book in the middle of the night. Yes. When Paul is asleep and she has to confront him about it. Yes. This is, this is pretty harrowing and and Jamie Kahn does a great job of reacting to Annie in, the, in this next scene because she opens the door with you murderer yeah and, and and I think Paul was kind of dreading when she got on some level I think he knew that she wasn't going to react well to mm-hmm. Misery's demise and but he had no idea that it was going to be this bad and he's like well, Annie you know a lot of women in that time died of childbirth and <laughs> yeah. you killed her well, I didn't kill her then who did and it's just a, it's a really irrational argument that there's no place for Paul to go that's safe because she doesn't have a rational complaint here, right? Because to her, misery is a real person. Yes. She's some kind of surrogate for a life that, that Annie would like, I think. Yeah, and so she suddenly decides that Paul is attacking her. Yes, yes. That, that's exactly what it, uh, she, she acts like. And she picks up a table and runs over to, to Paul Sheldon and it looks like she's getting ready to smash him with the table right and mm-hmm. he's like Annie don't 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 and she smashes the table above him and it breaks apart and then she says she she acts really weird in the next scene she was like I have to go and she she her face kind of I think this is her the first time where her face just loses it becomes that, that, that slack affect this is the part where she reveals that nobody knows where she's at everybody thinks he's dead and I'm gonna go now and you better hope nothing happens to me while I'm gone because if I die you die and when she drives away this is kind of a glorious shot the camera just lingers on Paul as he tries to look around for something to do but his legs are still badly broken he still can't really move and but this is his first attempt to get out of bed
head. This is a great depiction of anxiety, it's, which we are feeling too. Yes, it's raw panic and you feel every minute of it. The camera lingers on James Caan's face. I, I just think it's brilliant acting and he doesn't get to say a lot. Um, I think he I think he says something like, oh shit. There's, well, there's some vocalization at some point, but he, oh God, this is so grim. He pulls it, he pulls himself half out of bed and he's supporting his torso with one arm. His other arm, his, his right arm is in a sling for most of the movie, but he's going to get out of bed and crawl to the door and try and get out. This is, this is panic right here, but there is a moment where he has to kind of, where he gets out too far and he has to bring his legs off the bed. Yeah. And the whole time I'm like, I'm kind of grabbing my own legs because the only way for those legs, the only way those legs are coming off the bed is when, is, is with the help of gravity. Paul can't control his legs and yes. they crash to the hardwood floors. Ugh. Now that's a, now that's a real cinematic jump and it really happened for me. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then he drags himself across the floor only to find that Annie has locked the door and he kind of, I think he, he passes out somewhere on the floor and he finds him the next day. And, and, and at this point that's easy to play off. I fell out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now he doesn't play it off, but that's an assumption that she can make. Yeah. yeah. And she, and now, but I wonder, do you think that's what she thinks? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think, I think she probably recognized that he was trying to leave. And the next time I watch this movie, mm -hmm. that's something that I will want to watch is her paranoia. Does she really trust him or is this an act? I think owing to what we'll learn later on about her, I suspect that she doesn't trust him and that she, she might suspect something, but there's nothing that she can prove right now for all. She can't accuse him of anything yet because there's no evidence that he did anything but fall out of bed. And she also knows that he can't do anything. Like exactly. And so she, she goes back into that overly saccharine mode and yes. she's like, Oh, I'm so sorry, Paul, I left you here and you fell out of bed. And uh, this is all my fault. You know, I, sometimes I have such a bad temper. She, she basically tries to play what happened off. Like it's just a, a, a fit of temper. Right. But yeah, yeah. And not a psychotic episode. <laughs> um, right, right. And uh, she helps him back into bed. She gives him some pills for the pain. And I think this is the first time he hides them from her and starts to hide them himself, you know, hide them for later use, for some later use. Yeah, he initially stuffs them under the mattress yeah. and then he thinks better of it, which I think is really smart for this film to do, where he takes a piece of silverware. His fork. and His fork and he cuts into the mattress and begins from the mattress because he kind of recognizes that, well, you know, she might check under the mattress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so no, I thought that was brilliant too. That was such a nice touch. Now, in the novel, he was storing them to deal with his own growing addiction to the painkillers. Oh. In the novel, he becomes quite addicted to these painkillers and he's the Paul Sheldon in the novel isn't nearly as brave as the Paul Sheldon in the movie because the Paul Sheldon in the novel becomes quite addicted to the painkillers and wouldn't dream of crossing Annie for fear he wouldn't get his next dose. So he keeps them on hand. He starts hiding them and keeping some of them back for his own use because one of the ways that Annie bullies him and she does this in the movie too, she bullies him with pain. So sometimes she wouldn't give him the pills in the movie and the book because that would be a lever that she could use to get him to do what she wanted. And so he was keeping them for him or if he wasn't going to be able to escape Annie, he was going to use them to kill himself in the book. Okay. So it's, just, it's a, a different point. Uh, sorry, audience, if you haven't read the book, shit, I just fucking fucked that up. Maybe I'll cut this out. I don't know. Book, the book deals a lot with his addiction. And in the early chapters, it's just him moving in and out of waves of pain. Like, it's it's really weird. Before or after this, that she introduces him to Misery the Pig. Yes. Uh, there's all these little all these little moments that she that she consistently demonstrates yes. this kind of bizarre uh, aspect to her her personality but I, I mean but but actually I'm sure that was poor because she she comes to this realization that and she apologizes for how she behaved about his yes. manuscript but you know she she 
she thinks about it and apparently God, I think in the film, tells her that she needs to show Paul the way. Yes. She brings in a, a kind of a cheap charcoal grill. Yes. And puts his manuscript on it and brings in some, uh, oh my God, this is, this is actually, I, I, I think this is a harrowing scene. Yes. Even though it has, it has nothing to do with pain, uh, physical pain. But um, she says, you know, you need to burn your manuscript and you need to wipe this out and you need to bring misery back. Yes. And Paul, as a great writer, you know, as somebody who who does know how people think, and he's he's seen Annie enough, he's talked to her enough, he's watched her enough that he he kind of considers how she might respond uh, to situations, and he tries to call her bluff by saying, "Well, look, go ahead and burn it. I I already I already sent a copy to my editor, so they already have it. So if you burn this, it might make you feel good, but you're not really accomplishing anything." Yes, but Annie knows because she knows that he always has a last cigarette he always has the glass of champagne and that he never ever because he's superstitious yes never sends his manuscript out as the only copy and he knows that he's busted and she says you have to do it yes and he doesn't want to do it and then in in what i think actually in some ways is the most frightening thing annie does in the movie yeah she continues to talk to him in these almost prophetic inspiring ways yeah but while she's doing it she begins to put uh um charcoal fluid on his bl- on his blankets yes she's trying to act as if this is just some kind of accident it's i don't think that that it is an accident i think she's doing that that spraying of the lighter fluid on his bed completely intentionally but trying to do it in a way that he won't say uh annie uh watch what you're doing right because yeah, I'm, correcting her is a bad thing to do because she's blown yeah, up him a few times because the thing is is that annie's words to him you know her soothing words her you know those words are not for him they're for her yeah therefore her narrative that she loves him yes but her actions are actually what paul is supposed to respond to because her words are for her the implication is you burn the manuscript or i burn you yeah no i thought i thought that was absolutely the threat um that she was making but was unwilling to just state well not see you're right there's like this separation Mm -hmm. there's this narrative that she wants him to have but the narrative is not for him the narrative is for her you need to accept my narrative yeah yeah. if you you have to accept my narrative if you don't accept my narrative then this is what's going to happen yes. but i will not acknowledge to you yes because i mean that's also the reason why when she flips out and actually shows her true self she apologizes because you can't go anywhere yeah yeah i mean i mean i mean in theory sh- she could just say well you know really i like you here you can't leave yeah deal with it but no that's not good enough she has to have that narrative so everything that she says is for her and and then she has to engage in actions to make Paul give her the illusion of what she wants and what she wants and she says this several times is she wants that gothic romantic life yes and and misery of course gives her that but she also wants something like that in her own life no I think that that's absolutely right and Paul very reluctantly throws the match onto his manuscript which is something that he was very proud of so what Annie does is she she's she's purged Paul of the of the thoughts that were associated with this ooey gooey ugly manuscript now he can 
can think about nothing but bringing misery back. And so she buys him an old royal typewriter, this 50 pound uh, monstrosity. It doesn't have an in, but you're brilliant. You'll make do. Every writer needs a table. She gives him a table. And uh, the thing about Paul throughout this is that he seems to constantly be fighting despair. Yeah. You know, and, and he's kind of like just trying to listen to her without making her blow up. But as she's bringing things in from the car, she brings mm-hmm. the, the typewriter. She brings in a bunch of paper for him to work on. While she's doing all this, he notices a hairpin uh, 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 on the on the floor of his room. Yes. And this is this is almost like a life jacket is what it looks like. You know, it, it, we, we see some, we see that Paul sees that this is really important. Yes. We don't necessarily know for what, maybe, maybe you don't know for what, but, but he needs her to not notice it. Right. And so he concocts this neat little ruse, dangerous. Well, this is great, Annie, but this isn't the right paper is what he says to her. And she's like, what do you mean? It was the most expensive kind. And she's, she's starting to ramp up and he's like, yeah, but it smudges. And she was like, what? He's like, look, puts it in the typewriter, types on it, and he types the word smudge. And then he rubs his finger across it, and she does it, and she says, well, what do you know? And she's really mad, and he's trying to placate her. It's a really great scene where he's like, well, you know, Annie, if we're going to do this, I want you to be part of everything. I want you to learn how it's all done. And then she blows up at him, and she's like, well, I'll get your cock duty paper, but you just better start appreciating me. And she picks up some of this new paper, this paper that she just bought. And in another harrowing scene that is going to induce pain in the viewer, she she raises the paper above her head and slams it down on his broken legs. Jason's just winced. And- well, well I, I mean, one of the things that she, that Kathy Bates does, because I mean, you you described it accurately. She initially, she she almost feigns this kind of concern that, oh my God, you know, it does smudge. Yeah. And, and um, you know, she, because this is what she's been doing the whole time. She's been disguising her real feelings. Yeah. But in this moment, it she, she lets it all, she lets it show and she overreacts to something that really what's really odd is that in this moment almost seems like Paul in a way that makes a lot of sense is kind of plugging into something that he assumes would be a priority for her yes and so I think in watching the movie we are stunned that she reacts the way she does like well I mean this is important to you wouldn't you be concerned wouldn't you want him to have the right paper yeah you want want everything to be right for him you want him to be able to type by the you you know, by the, by the window. Eventually you want to give him his champagne and his match and his cigarette and yep. you want to make everything perfect. Why are you angry? Yes. But see, that's what makes this frightening because like, oh, she's not even predictable. Yeah. Like, he, like even in those things that she knows about him, that she, that she can't even, he can't manipulate her back in a predictable way. Now, just there are certain things he can do, yeah. but it's not perfectly predictable. No, but he is, he does, this is, this is the first moment where he starts to learn some of the ways he can manipulate her. He gets much better at it as the movie goes on because he does figure her out quite a bit by the end of the movie. This is something else that the movie does really subtly. It, it very subtly shows us Paul figuring her out. She knows a lot about him, but she doesn't really understand real people. So when he starts figuring out how to manipulate her, the game the, the, the game becomes a little more even between them. But she leaves and goes to get the paper and he gets to the, to the, uh, the hair 
pin. And they make that tense too. When he rolls the wheelchair over to get the little, uh, the bobby pin, he's leaning over and the whole time you're like, oh God, don't let the wheelchair flip over. Don't, you know, you're, you're always worried about him when he's leaning in precarious ways, but he gets it and he, he uses it to pick a lock and uh, get out into Annie's weird ass house. He's in a wheelchair at this point. He goes through the house and, and here we see Paul testing the ways that he might be able to escape. He, sees he tries to go to the phone and discovers that it's not connected at all. And not only that, there's nothing inside the phone housing. Th- there's nothing inside it at all. And so um, oh, that- we, one, we, we get one of the great corker lines in, in the in the film when he turns the phone over and he's like, he sees that the, the, the plastic housing is empty and he's like, what kind of crazy bitch? You know? <laughs> he continues to try to find a way to get out of the house. Now, now it's at this point that he ends up knocking down one of uh, one of Annie's uh, ceramic figures, which is a penguin. Yeah. And he catches it. It doesn't break, which is a tense moment in the film. Yes. And he puts it back and kind of in an obvious wrong way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, 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 and this is done in a very smart way because we kind of recognize that, ooh, that's not the way that it originally was. Yeah. yeah. Eventually this might come, come up again. Yeah. And it does. It does. But, but, but not immediately. No, no. And that's, and that's another thing about this movie that this is kind of Hitchcockian that, yeah. that this will only be played out later. Well, this goes back to, as you say, it happens later. This sort of goes back into what you were saying about Annie's unpredictability. Yeah. Like he might have expected if he had left something out that she would have confronted him about it right away. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't. She she stews on him a little bit. In part, she says later on because she's not sure that she wasn't sure that he was out and about. But he makes it from one room to the other. He gets to the kitchen, right? And, yeah. he, and he tries to crawl because he can't get his wheelchair through the kitchen and he crawls along the floor to try and get out. But Annie has key locks on the inside of all of her doors. You can't unlock any door in her house without a key, whether you're outside the house or inside the house, which goes back to maybe that paranoia of hers. And so, and this this is another tense moment too, where he's like defeated. He's laying on the floor. Annie's gone to town and is coming back and she's almost back. And he's sitting in the kitchen when he hears her truck pull up. And we have this nice little uh, scene where uh, Annie's approaching the house and Paul is scrambling to get back to his room. So he's got to get to his wheelchair. Annie's getting out of the car. She's frustrated about everything. And uh, she drops the paper and it's a very close run thing. If she finds him outside the room, he's probably in some trouble. Yeah. Now, now this is, this is great editing. Yep. This is great scoring. This is, this is great viewing. Yes. Yes. Um, This is something uh, if Alfred Hitchcock had been alive at this point, he would have nodded in total approval of how this was all this was all done well you and i've seen this before and i I found it was still quite a tense scene yes yes um and not only does he have to get back to his room and this was the part that i was like oh god this would suck he's got to relock the door with that bobby pin which which would be difficult because you're you're nervous it's not an easy thing to do no when you're not nervous unless you're really experienced but he gets it done it's kind of a harrowing and frustrating scene because he doesn't really accomplish much no and yet he and we have to go through all of this. Yes. And there are a few things like that that happen with Paul where his plans get foiled. He isn't very successful and, and, he, and he comes up with some good ideas. Yeah. Um, where he where his mastery of the ways he can manipulate or start to come together, he he does he does come up with he comes up with one ingenious trap. Well, two ingenious traps. One of them fails and one of them do- 
doesn't necessarily fail, but 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 this is this is great filmmaking. She brings his paper in. I think she apologizes to him again, and she was like, you know, one of the reasons why I don't have more friends is because I have a problem with my temper. While that's happening, Paul's car is discovered. J.T. Walsh's state trooper gives easily one of the most unhopeful press conferences I've seen in cinema, where he's like, <laughs> well, we found his car. It's quite likely that he managed to get out of the car and he died somewhere in the woods. We'll find him when the spring thaws, unless the animals have gotten to their body, his body, which is a distinct possibility. And all the reporters turn around. You heard it here first, folks. Yada yada yada. But, <laughs> right, right. But which is just funny. I thought that's not the that's not that's not the reporting you want your 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 state trooper to give. I don't think Buster is there at the press briefing, and he doesn't think that that JT Walsh is correct. Yeah. Well, the way it goes down, Virginia says you don't think he's dead, and he's like, not the way they're saying. Yeah. Because I mean, he does accept that he could be dead. Buster Buster realizes by examining the vehicle that somebody pried the door open with a crowbar and took him. Now, he accepts the possibility that they might have killed him. Again, there's that pragmatic mystery solver. He's not prejudging anything. He's going to solve the puzzle. And and he's not going to start, he's going to follow Holmes's maxim about like, wait till you get all the facts before you start. Yeah, yeah. Before you start start solving the riddle. I butchered that and I'm sure Holmes fans are going to not like that I did that, but this isn't a Sherlock Holmes podcast, so uh, we're just going to have to deal with it, audience. Well, but, but you know, it's very interesting you bring that up because actually um, it's Sherlock Holmes is something I was going to mention because there's actually a piece of the Paul Sheldon character that's kind of related to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's relationship with Sherlock Holmes. Yes, yes. Doyle actually did, in fact, kill Holmes off or he wanted to kill Holmes off. And due to fan outrage in whatever year, 1880 or whatever it was, um, brought him back. He had to pull a misery returns with yes, with yes, yes. yes. That, that wasn't lost on me as I was watching this film. One of the things that I really dug about the book and the movie is as Paul is trying to figure out how to get misery back to life, they do a lot more with this in the book, but they do enough of it in the movie that, that it satisfied me. Annie is a great editor. Yeah. And she comes in and he's like, he's at least got 80, maybe 100 pages done of this new book, Misery Returns. And she's like, this just isn't going to do, Paul. This is beneath you. And he's like, what? She well, she, she accuses him of cheating. It's not right. You know, he's like, uh, she's like, uh, she has this little monologue about the serials, the chapter yes. plays. I'm sorry, Paul. This is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out. Except for that part of naming the grave digger after me. You can leave that in. I really value your criticism. But maybe we're being a little hasty here. Paul, what you've written just isn't fair. Not fair. That's right. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter. The bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road, knocked him out, and welded the door shut, and tore out the brakes, and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, this isn't what happened last week. Have you all got 
succeeded like that in um, chapter plays. But not you. Not with my misery. Remember, Ian did ride for Dr. Cleary at the end of the last book, but his horse fell jumping that fence, and Ian broke his shoulder and his ribs and lay all night in the ditch, and he never reached the doctor, so there couldn't have been any experimental blood transfusion that saved her life. Misery was buried in the ground at the end, Paul, so you'll have to start there. And that was a big ask of his new editor, but it was in the book we find out it's the right thing to do. They don't explore a lot of this misery returns in the movie. In the novel, misery. It's almost, we almost get a novel within a novel thing happening. Okay. We start getting some of the chapters of misery. In fact, some of the stuff that, that Paul, quote unquote, writes here made me like, I, I would like to read this book that he's writing. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But also before that, this is kind of interesting and it doesn't make it into the movie. And I, I can understand why when he's trying to write the novel, the typewriter starts talking to him. Okay. And it's always, you know, it's sort of a challenge, challenging him. And some of this is probably drug induced hallucination that he's, he's kind of suffering under. But he's getting a lot of good advice from Annie and the typewriter. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. But I could see I, one of the things that I was disappointed at in 1990 after I saw the movie was like, man, I wish they'd had the talking typewriter. But I think it would have been hard to do tonally. I think that maybe people would have laughed about this. You know, is this supposed to be funny? I mean, it, it would really depend on who you got to be the voice of the typewriter, I think. But is would it have been needed? I don't think that it's needed. Not in this. Not in this interpretation of the of the of the story. This is an interesting question because if you want that, you can read the novel. It, no, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And and for me, the objection after seeing the movie wasn't. It didn't detract from the movie for me. It's like what happens in some of in some translations from material, uh, original material, source material, book, comic book, short story to screen. Sometimes you lose beloved characters. Everybody who ever read Lord of the Rings, we all lost. Tom Bombadil. That was okay. I mean, it's not like doing Cujo and not putting Cujo in the novel, right? The <laughs> right. Um, this is just kind of a that just the typewriter, the talking typewriter, just adds a layer of texture to the novel. But I could see how it would have been, caused problems for anybody trying to incorporate it into the movie. That's that is a gem of pacing. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, so I get you. I get. I get what you're saying. I think I have to agree with that. It didn't detract from the movie. Like I said, just a character I liked. Like a lot of people like Tom Bombadil, but we did. We don't like a certain song goes we don't always get what we want but right. we, we we get what we need sometimes in cinema <laughs> so i just wanted to bring that up but they do this pretty well and one of the things that paul in the novel and in this book can't help but to do is to listen to annie's criticisms because they're good criticisms yeah. when when she's reading his redo the second draft he says to her well what do you think is it is it fair that was her big complaint is it fair and i won't go into how he solves the riddle of bringing her back but but annie is like everybody who read Misery, the novel. Well, that's brilliant, Paul, what you've done to bring your character back from the dead. And, and she loves what he's done. This is another way in which he learns, Paul learns how he can manipulate Annie. Yeah. You know, he starts to buy himself more time by saying, you know, well, you have to wait. You have to wait. When she asks and him, well, who's going to be, who, what's going to happen next? And he's like, well, you'll have to wait and see. And she says, can I read each chapter? And and in the novel, she's quite a good editor. And, and in this movie, they do with the, in a compressed way, they do that. They do that relationship, that weird segment of their relationship pretty 
pretty well. Oh yeah, I mean she's she's very giddy, and 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 I guess this might be as good a place as any to because I mean look, everyone knows Kathy Bates brilliant in this movie. Yes, I mean her her best actress award was well deserved. I mean this is one of the best performances you'll ever see in a horror movie. Yeah, I don't know, it might be the best. Yeah, you know, I mean it's arguable, but you know James Caan is underrated. He doesn't get the credit that he deserves. No, it's true because because actually you know James Caan in his career he's always had this kind of cocky smile yeah. in a lot of his roles and he's got that here and he uses that to good effect to convince us that he is that he is selling his story to Annie yeah but James Khan also has to convey in addition to you know his confidence his doubt that it, that his attempt is going to land yeah and I think James Khan in every moment of this movie absolutely in this passive role does that oh Oh, I, I, absolutely. No, they're both brilliant. Well, I think the three leads, and I think we have to include... Uh, Richard Farnsworth. They're all brilliant. Off uh, the charts brilliant. Yes, yes. I think that Khan doesn't get the credit that he probably deserved for this film because he's playing under Kathy Bates in a dynamite role. Kathy has to take Annie through a bunch of emotional ups and downs and through weird moments. Paul does. Uh, James Khan doesn't get to take Paul Sheldon through as many dramatic mood swings and craziness and Farnsworth for as brilliant as he is he's an old character actor who I think is mostly playing Richard Farnsworth in this in this movie which, which is which fine is, it is exactly yeah. what the role requires but he's, he's he's everything that you want in that role and you don't need anything you know you don't need to bring anything extra into it but I think that that's why I, I think that's why Jamie Khan doesn't get the the credit that he probably deserves for this role I, I agree with you and the, the reason I love James Khan in this role it's not just because I love him as an actor and I do but I, I actually what I found in watching it is that we would get these close-ups of Kathy Bates and we would be mesmerized by what she was doing and and I think that while we're watching the movie we're trying to kind of unravel how we would respond to her oh yeah and then when we see how James Kahn respond as, as Paul Sheldon how he responds we're constantly critiquing in our head oh oh, oh I wouldn't have done that oh that might work let's yeah. let's see what that does and, and and you know and that kind of heightens the tension because we're wondering if he's doing the right thing, we're kind of critiquing up, oh, you know, maybe you went too far there. Oh, 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 you did well there. Yeah. She's going to buy, she's going to buy that. And um, we kind of see that in his face as well. Now he doesn't get the close, he doesn't get the close-ups she does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is good because in a certain way, it's almost like that we're watching the movie from his perspective. Yes. Not, not, not completely because we obviously get lots of images of his response, yeah. but she gets most of the close-ups and right so yeah and so we kind of get to almost in a certain way pretend we're in the bed which yeah. is what me- which is what makes this movie genuinely frightening well i i think that that's wow i think that that's a great observation we get to be in the bed i think that's absolutely right because i can't think of too many movies where i have winced so much yes in empathetic pain yes i i grabbed my legs a couple times while watching yes this, you know? and i know the first time i watched it i grabbed my legs several times so, oh my God, what the hell? You know, anybody who's lived a life of any even minor activity has been injured. Right. And, and everybody, I think almost all humans can 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 will watch this movie and have that reaction. They'll yeah. they'll they'll feel that that pain, that almost phantom pain that, that that Paul feels. He's moving around the house more when she's gone and feeling more comfortable doing it. Uh, one of his forays out shortly after his after she's given him the green light to keep going on the novel, he finds her book of memories 
Yeah. And this is the big reveal. She's hinted at it in in uh, one of her lines where she's flipping out on Paul, where she's giving the reveal about her mission from God. And she's like, you know, I don't, sometimes I have co- trouble keeping things straight in my head. My head gets a little fuzzy. That's why I had so many problems answering the questions on the stand in, in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. When she says that, Paul even looks, Paul looks as horrified as we feel. What does that mean, right? <laughs> right. And when Paul finds her book of memories, he's about to find out what she meant. Yeah, um, he, he discovers she was indeed a nurse. There were a lot of unexplained deaths on her nursing ward. We also kind of get the um, the insinuation that maybe she killed her husband. Yes. Which she had said that he had left. Yes. Now, I think all of this is great because she's, because you're quite right, she, she had insinuated a lot of this stuff. Then we we just get these newspaper articles and that is sufficient yes. to give us a to give us a picture of her past yeah that she is somebody that is so insecure that for and, and we we could guess at the reasons yeah but she has murdered infants yes in the hospital and she got away with it she and i mean look she's kept these newspaper clippings yes you yes. know if if she didn't do these things uh she wouldn't want to think about it no no she put it she puts it in a book entitled my memories this is Central to her mental life. Well, there's, there's a, definitely a part of her that is proud of what she's done and proud of getting away with these things. Yes. So, no, it, but so we're getting that story paid out to us. And one of the nice things about this is seeing Paul react to each flip of the page. He already knew he was in a bad situation, but he didn't quite know how bad, I think, until he read this. I think that he thought, well, you know, this might be a person who's never had, a, you know, who's crazy. Yeah. But who's, but who's never really had an opportunity to play that out yes and now he's discovering this is somebody you know i'm just the the latest yes in a long line of kind of quiet mysterious under the table vendettas that she has against the human race yes well one of the murders in her her there are several murders in her yearbook i don't know if you caught them all or her memories book she killed the the person who was going to be valedictorian and she got top honors yes yes I did. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, there was a mysterious disappearance of the nurse who had been the head of the maternity ward. And right. she took that position. Who knows how... We didn't get a flip through the whole book. Right. Annie is is a is a serial killer. I think he has to beat another quick hasty retreat back to his room. And while he's been... Uh, oh, sorry. So, so he reads that. But before he does that, he steals a bunch of her pills. Yes. Yes. He, he, uh, he goes into her medicine closet, which yeah. she's got a lot of medication. Yes, she does. And, and he grabs uh, several packets of the medication she's been giving him. I mean, basically, but he's, he's already been saving that. So he's yeah. really just kind of accelerating the amount of medication that he has because he has a plan. He has a plan. And we don't quite know what the plan is, but he, uh, he does this really ingenious thing where he starts taking out the contents of these gel caps. He's dumping them in this little paper envelope that he's created uh, out of a notebook paper. One of the things that I thought kind of demonstrated how clever Paul was, was he looks at the gel caps and he's like, well, what do I do with these? And then he just eats them. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's kind of clever. It's a throwaway moment. We don't spend much time on it, but I thought, well, that's really, that's that's a smart guy. This is one of those moments that you were talking about earlier. Like, that's pretty smart. Would I have thought of that? Because we're the guy in the bed. That's a, that's a great point. I, I'm going to keep coming back to that now that you've made a great point. I'll cut out how you made the point and I'll try and put in how I made the point. So he's putting all these in a little envelope. What was the, what's the plan, Jason? Tell us the plan. Whether or not he knows what the plan is going to be, yeah. but he, um, he he's about to finish the book and he he 
really summons up his best uh, flattery of yeah. uh, of Annie that you know I'm I'm, I'm going to finish the book. Uh, would you have dinner with me? Yes. And you know, can we have wine? And and she is genuinely flattered. Yes. She she is going to be all ready for it and all made up. And and his plan is going to be that he is going to drug her with what she has been drugging him with. I think that the dose that he has is going to kill her. Okay. I, I think that that's going to kill her. I he puts so many of those pills in that envelope. Very true. Yeah. I, I think that it probably would have killed her. He asks her for a candle. Yes. To to perfect the moment, and so she has to leave the leave the room. He then drugs her wine. She comes back, and here, here I want to ask you a question. Yes. She um she, she burns herself on the candle and knocks the wine over. Yes. And she is so sorry that she ruined the toast that he was about to make. And I actually I paused the movie and yeah. I watched this and I watched the scene again because the question that I have for you and that I still have did she know something was wrong? Did she do that on purpose? I you know I I didn't pause the movie but I wondered the same thing and the and the scene works either way. If you're if you're a viewer and you want to think that she knew something and she tried to pawn it off as as if she didn't and spill the wine so she wouldn't have to confront Paul about this wonderful evening. I, I, it could work this way because I don't think Annie would want the evening to end even if she thought Paul was trying to do something. It also works and it works more for me in this way if it's just one of those freak occurrences that causes Paul's plan to fail. Either way, we get Paul seeing his plan ruined. And so I think either interpretation works. What did you think? I, you know... I, I'm with you. It could go either way. I'm almost 50-50. Yeah. But actually, I kind of landed on she knew. Okay. Or, or maybe she didn't know, but she was that paranoid that she just assumed. It's possible. It's possible. Because we'll learn a little later on that she already suspects that Paul's moving around the house. Right. It takes Paul a moment to recover from that. It does. And James Conn plays this very Look, we feel every emotion that's in his oh, face. Wait. I mean, I've seen the movie. I've read the book. And man, when that wine spilled everywhere i was just like oh god that's i could feel again that that was his that was a master plan that he put into motion it was great and however that wine ended up getting spilled whether because she knew or just one of those freak accidents either way james Conn has to recover and man the pregnant pause is brilliant and he yeah. he slowly recovers and this causes him to uh have to go to a more aggressive plan a couple nights later we don't know how long there is a terrible night of storms and we get Annie at one of her lowest moments. This is the moment where she reveals kind of the depressive side of herself. Yeah. Which she she kind of hasn't done for him at the, this point. No. And so she comes in, the room's all dark. She kind of just like puts his pills on the table. She doesn't even bring him dinner and she, and this is that, but this is also, man, even though this is at her at her most down, she's also very manipulative. This is the first time I noticed this tonight because yeah. she gives Paul a bunch of opportunities to say, I love you after she says it to him. And she she says, "Don't say it back." Because I know you don't mean it. I know you don't. I know you wouldn't mean it. This is so brilliant from uh, from Kathy Bates. She keeps giving these glances, like she is waiting for him to say that she he loves her. Yeah. I think that Annie Wilkes is giving Paul opportunities to quote unquote correct the record. Yeah. And Paul doesn't do it because he can't say that because he because he does realize that what she says initially is true. It wouldn't be true, and you would see right through it. And uh, and then she pulls out the gun that's in her robe, and she's like, you know. 
know, I think about using this sometimes. I don't remember what exactly she says. Does she make it clear that she thinks about killing both of them in the scene? It, she says, I better go or I might load the gun. Uh, it, it's more of a, an implied thing. Yeah. And of course, it's brilliant because uh, on her part because Paul hasn't had to deal with this yet. Yeah. She's so she's so depressed that the way that Paul has been manipulating her back yeah. will not be effective. Yes. Yes. And and so this is this is a new this is a new wrinkle for him. Yes. And this causes him to think he needs to do a, a more aggressive plan. And so when she leaves because she's worried about what she might do, he leaves his room again and gets a chef's knife yep. and takes it back to his room. And this is kind of a cool moment where he's he's practicing pulling the knife out uh, from his sling. He, he's yeah. been hiding how much better his right arm is doing from Annie and hiding and trying to hide throughout the course of the movie. You get the sense that he's been trying to hide just how much he's recovered. Yeah. And uh, and but this is kind of a neat moment where he's practicing pulling that knife out because you because you know he wants to just stab her. And uh, and after a while, you can tell he's getting a little tired, but he's staying awake. And she comes back and she comes into the house and she stands outside his door for a moment. And he he thinks she's going to come in to give him a pill to say hi to him or whatever but she doesn't she goes upstairs turns on her game shows and Paul puts the knife away and says to nobody see you in the morning sadly for him Annie is gonna have to foil yet another one of his plans which is a good plan this is why I wondered about the wine that she was actually faking and that yep. she knew that he had he had done what he had done because she does actually seem to be ahead of him most of the time if she did realize it Annie Wilkes is a great actor because yeah. I thought that the naturalism of the spill was so well done that it it sold accident to me. Yeah. Audience, if you have an opinion about this, let us know. Did Andy? Yeah, because know? because I, I think I I see what you're saying. I think I disagree. Yeah. Just because I rewound it and I rewound it. That's a throwback to the use of VCR tapes. But yeah. I rewatched it and yeah. I thought, you know, I kind of think that she's almost she's almost playing it as the oh shit look what I just did yeah to protect I mean you're, I mean you're right to protect yeah. the illusion that she had but because and, and here's how I will defend my position yeah so she comes in and she she knocks him out uh with a sedative and you know the, the plan to stab her with the knife is gone yeah but then when he comes to she explains to him how she knew something was wrong yeah. that the penguin always faces north or whatever it is yeah. now here's what I would say to you knowing Annie she didn't just notice that she's known it for a while yes yes no she's known that for a while obviously and she 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 suggests that she left out the book for him to find oh right right you know and uh that was something that she seems to have wanted to share with him <laughs> Um, yeah. why that is something she wanted to share with him it wouldn't have set my it wouldn't have set me as a guest at ease having found her memory <laughs> lane uh, but but she doesn't really care about his emotion no it's true she cares about her perception of what she wants to believe about his emotion. yes this is more great acting from James Kahn who has to navigate this scene kind of still in a druggy state he's he's recovering he's not fully conscious yet he's trying to talk to Annie and you can even see the hesitancy in his movements as he's trying to get 
get to the knife that he hid between the sheets of the bed and she says are you looking for this paul yeah and uh and she's she, I, th- I can't remember if she almost takes the blame here for some of his behaviors you know she but she's like she has a little talk with him and she asks him if he knows what they used to do to the miners who stole uh from oh. the mines the dime uh, the mines in pennsylvania and she's like and paul's like hi ah, annie and he kind of he's already putting that those placating hands up and he's like she says don't worry they didn't kill them they needed them to work and they perfected this operation called hobbling and it would allow them to work in the mines but not run away with the goods and she puts this four by four between his legs by his ankles so it's his, his ankles are braced and paul is such a plaintive thing where he says annie whatever you're thinking about doing <laughs> Yeah. Don't. I think. She says, this is for your own good, Paul. It'll be over in just a second. And yeah. as she says that, she this is really well framed in another one of those close-ups of Annie with the sledgehammer. And uh, and they show her rearing back. Paul screams, Annie, don't. And she swings the hammer. And in one of the greatest effect shots, Jason is already wincing, uh, in cinema history, the sledgehammer hits the ankle and his ankle folds over in the most obscene way I've seen in film. James Kahn's reaction to this is great great he is in he is conveying agony to me and then i I think this is when she says it's almost over paul because she's going to hit his other ankle and they don't even show the other ankle fold over they just show her rear back and they they show her swinging and then the scene cuts to paul and we hear the snap and we see the second the second bout of agony and then he passes out which is the best thing that could have happened for him the scene is perfect oh it is because it it is it is visually harrowing but it doesn't beat us over the head with it no um it's both both, it's both explicit and subtle at the yes. same time. That's a hard thing to balance, those two yes. those two things. A slasher movie from this era would have shown both. They would have done what they did in the book, which in the book, Annie slices off his leg and slices off one of his feet and cauterizes the wound. Equally traumatic, but yeah. but nothing subtle about that. Right. And that might have been too much for some audiences. I think Rob Reiner here throughout the movie is really restrained, even when he's pushing the boundaries of what we want to see. Well said, yes. And so so he passes out. And I think this is when we cut to Farnsworth, I'm sorry, uh, Buster, figuring things out. He goes to the library and comes back in with uh, all of Paul Sheldon's works, misery works, and he's reading them. And we see him reading them more and more. And we see there's a funny scene where uh, he's reading the book in bed at night. And he says something to her about what's happening in the novel. And she's like, well, that's great, dear. <laughs> It's not. Yeah. And there's a quote in the novel that he really, uh, that really arrests him. And I think it's probably because he's got that sharp mind and he's heard somebody else say it. Yes. And the, the quote is, there's a higher justice than that of man. And, and he will be, he, it is he who will judge me. That's yes. the quote. He writes it down. And I think it's because he's heard it somewhere else. We don't touch it for a little bit, but we see the sheriff kind of doing his investigation. He goes up to the hotel where Paul was staying. He asks some questions. One of the moments where he's back at the office, he sees Annie interact with somebody in the town. Somebody almost cuts her off and there's a honking of horns and she says you cock-a-doody or something. She uses one of her <laughs> stupid insults on the guy who almost cut her off. Buster is immediately intrigued. Those detective antennae are up and he watches her yell again at the guy who honks at her and gives her the finger and she says some things back to him and he runs back inside and picks up the quote but his wife is at his desk organizing his desk and he's like what are you doing? I've got every and in his desk 
desk is a catastrophe of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, I told you, I've got this all organized. And she's just like, Buster's going to be Buster. And she, I mean, Virginia doesn't fight him on this. He could have and been a he, classmate of ours at uh, in elementary school. Yes, yes, yes. But Jason and I, in fourth grade, had desks that surpassed... <laughs> Buster's desk for catastrophe. He goes and uh, he's rushing out the door and I can't remember what Virginia says to him as he's leaving the door and he's called her sarcasm the spice that keeps their marriage going yeah, yeah. And, and she says something sarcastic and as he's rushing out the door chasing the lead he says there's that spice and he and he's out the door and it's another nice little character moment for these two, these two characters that we like a lot and he goes to the library and he starts going through the archives and he's he's hunting for this this quote and he finds he finds Annie in the archives of the newspaper finds the quote that she said from his novel yeah, yeah the one that he wrote down and he's pretty much solved it yeah. here now it's just a matter of getting evidence and uh, he drives up to Annie's house this is harrowing too because Paul sees this, the sheriff's truck coming in and you can tell he's getting hopeful but then Annie swoops in with that hypodermic needle again and they have a little fight and Paul really seems to be choking her for all he's worth and, yes and it's a great moment and and she it, it's really Really, I think it's a fraught moment and she almost doesn't get the needle in him or, or she's almost killed by Paul. It's hard to say. But as she's taking Paul down to the basement, she goes into that all about me mode. I don't know why you keep fighting me, Paul. I feed you, I clothe you and you keep fighting me. It's, it's that it's that problem in her personality. But she greets Buster at the door. Buster lets her prattle. Buster asks her about uh, Paul Sheldon and she's like, have you heard of, he, he's like, have you heard about Paul Sheldon? And he's like, oh, it was terrible. Do you know anything about him? And she rattles off fan trivia. Yeah, I mean, she actually, to the extent that she can, she plays it off well. Yes. Uh, I think she's smart enough to know that he's on to her. Yes, yes. You know, she she basically just chooses to be herself. Yes. Yeah, I'm the biggest fan in the world. You know, that kind of thing. It's a pretty brilliant ploy. And if he wasn't as good a detective as he was, as, if he wasn't who he was, it might have worked because she, she, she does actually concoct a nice just-so story. Right. Look, I've created this studio. I've read all of his work. God's told me that I should come. I should keep misery going. So I'm going to try and write like Paul. I think I can do it. You, would you like to read some of what I've written? Is what she 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 even? Yeah. I mean, that's bold. And then they have a little. Then they have a kind of a cool little cat and mouse where she's like, "Well, you know, I, you, you, it's like I never have a guest here," which is actually the truth. <laughs> right, right. And and she's like, "Can I get you a cup of hot cocoa?" And he says, "Yes." He has no intention of drinking anything that Annie Wilkes gives him. I don't think the moment she goes back into the kitchen, butter. Buster goes upstairs to her room. That's one of the few, that's one of the times where we really see her room in some detail. Yeah. And he's looking around. We wonder if this is going to be a bad moment where Annie is walking up behind Buster and she says, Oh, here's your cocoa. And he looks at it the way a person regards a cobra. <laughs> And he says, uh, well, you know, I better get going. Thanks for the, thanks for the cocoa. <laughs> he, yeah. he leaves. I think there's something in that cocoa because she's so insistent on giving it to him. Yeah. In her mind, she's got to know if he leaves here, this is not the end. I'm going to have to deal with this guy in some way. Yes. And so she's trying to figure that out kind of on the fly. Yes. Yes. What happens next is classic King. Yeah. At the same time, all this, this tension is going on. And this is such a tense scene between the two of them you know buster knows something's up annie knows buster knows something's up but nothing
nothing can be proved. He doesn't really have, you know, probable cause to really search the, the grounds or detain her in any way. So he has to leave and figure some, he has to leave and regroup. But at the same time, Paul is coming too. Maybe Annie didn't get a good injection or whatever. And he knocks over that shitty grill. Mm-hmm. That brings Buster back into the house. Yeah, and, and he finds the um, the doorway into the cellar. Yes, yes. Where the sound came from. And he um, he probably knows what Paul Sheldon looks like just because yes. oh, I'm he's, sure. he's, he's looked at all these pictures and, and, and he said, Mr. Sheldon? And then there's a shotgun blast and there's a bloody circle right on his chest his body, yes. and he falls down. And, and I got to tell you, again, not having read the book, when I first watched this movie, I, I was shocked. Well, because the film treats him with such affection. Oh, yes. That his character doesn't just stumble into this. No, no. That we perceive him as a kind of hero. As, yeah, yeah. As, as, as the guy that saves the day. And when when his search finally pays off, it's only seconds and then he and then he's dead. Yes, yes. And this kind of thing has always been sort of important to Stephen King. And the rule of good horror, good thrillers, is, I'll amend this in a minute, but what you hear a lot of people say is anybody can die at any time. Yeah. And that keeps everybody on the edge of your seat. Now, I think the actual rule is almost anybody can die at any time in a horror film like this. I think we know that Paul survives. So so almost anybody can die in a film with this small of a cast. But but you're right. The film is setting us up for Buster saving the day in some way. The same way that, that Kubrick sort of sets up Scatman Carruthers. Yeah. As, oh, in, in exactly the same way. Absolutely. As as being a, a hero, the hero in, in uh, The Shining. So Paul has no savior now. Annie's about to kill him, kill Paul in that, here. In that moment in the cellar. Yes. She, and But but Paul, and, and, and this is really good because Paul, there is still the one thing that she cannot resist. Yes. They've not finished the book. Yes. And there's lots of things that Annie could surprise us and him that, that wouldn't work in terms of manipulation. But but this is not one of them. No. And <laughs> because her attachment to misery is all consuming. Absolutely. And this is Paul's most masterful manipulation of Annie. And he sort of, he, he conveys that he agrees with her. We both have to die, but so misery can live. Yeah. And this takes her, the 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 way Kathy Bates plays this is, is a moment of like, this is something that she's wanted to hear from Paul the whole time. Yes. yes. You know? And she plays it almost as, as if this is her first crush succeeding. This is high romance for her, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I think she even says something like, oh, Paul, really? Yes, Annie. She goes up and she's, oh, I'll, I'll get you, I'll, I'll get you something to eat. And she sets her, his wheelchair up. And though, again, this is another moment where he's playing for time because he sees a tool that he can use that also has a lot of, uh, you know, poetic justice in it. The lighter fluid that she immolated his masterwork yeah. with is near him. And he grabs it and he puts it in his, uh, in his sweats and he's concocted a plan. We don't know what it is just yet, but it again will involve Annie's obsession. Yes. And so, and at this point though, Paul understands how to make Annie jump through hoops. So he's writing the novel and she's back to her giddy self. She's not depressed anymore. She loves everything that Paul's doing. Oh, is he, is is misery going to marry person X or Winthrop or whatever? Oh, I can't believe that you're having them duel to marry misery. Who's it going to be? And she's, she's giddy. She's a school girl. She's a very immature mind. And, And, uh, and, and he's writing for her now. Absolutely. Yeah. Why wouldn't you write for your number one fan? And then he, he says, okay, Annie, I'm ready. I think, I think you better bring that, uh, the cigarette and the champagne. And, but and she brings it in and this, that's right. She does say two glasses, but he plays it out really brilliantly. And he's like, well, it's all perfect, Annie, except for one thing. And you can see her face shift to that about to 
explode yeah. moment because she's about to be corrected. But you're right. She she makes the Jason's been making the gesture of the two fingers, and and Paul says, "I need two glass. We need two glasses." And when she leaves, go ahead, Jason. Well, and, and and when he says two glasses, that's like the ultimate. That's the ultimate manipulation because she just melts like like this is this is everything that she's dreamed of, and so she leaves. And then he he puts the manuscript on the floor. He gets the lighter fluid, gets the match, douses the 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 manuscript and then get some uh one piece of paper and 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 crinkles it into like a kindling yeah, yeah and then waits for her return and and it was established in the first scene in the movie that uh when he lights a cigarette when he lights the match to light a cigarette it's he uses his finger yeah and it's a, and it's an immediate light so he yeah. he's a he's very adept at lighting a match the thing that i really like about this moment is she comes into the doorway paul has basically said to her i love you in a way that she'll believe with that two yep. glasses thing. Yep. And the thing that's really neat, again, Kathy Bates really deserved her Oscar here. She's confused. She's not mad. She's just, what's going on here? He says, do you want to know who the father of Brent, uh, Misery Chastain's child is? It's all in here. Do you want to know who wins the duel? It's all in here. And she st- it cuts back to her every time he asks one of these questions. And she's like, she's, she's deeply confused. What is he doing? Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. he lights the match, attaches that match to the kindling and drops it on the, on the, on the manuscript now before he set this up he also moved the 50 pound typewriter close to him in such yeah. a way audiences who hadn't read the book might might not have even noticed that but he put the manuscript by his feet because he knew what she would do when he lights the match she runs to the manuscript and starts trying to put it out with her hands right and her head is right by his legs and he picks up the typewriter and smashes her with the 50 pound royal typewriter go ahead jason sorry I, I, no and 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 well we didn't mention this there were a few moments earlier in the film after she gave him the typewriter he used the typewriter as kind of a kind of a weight yes to to work on his strength to kind of prepare for this moment yes and and, and i thought that was pretty cool oh it's great it's great and i think this fight is graceless but it is one of the better movie fights that i've seen in in film it's these you cocksucker (laughs) yeah this is when she drops her facade she tries to she starts trying to choke him and he gouges her uh, he, she gouge, he gouges her eyes and that she... is great in that moment you know when you imagine yourself being in that situation where you know it's just anything I can do yes. to survive I will do and I will go for those those places that be, well first of all because he's still I mean actually even though I think the film establishes his legs are quite a bit better yeah, yeah. but still she's wild and, and yeah. um, has a lot of energy and he knows he has to disable her pretty quickly yes and, and, and the film does and it looks good oh i think i think all of it looks great she flies back and she starts to charge at him and he does this neat thing where he rolls towards her and then just kind of throws himself at her i mean this is the final battle either he wins or they're both dead because she'll kill him and then herself and it's a savage savage fight i mean i've seen this movie before yeah i knew i knew the ending i still was watching it biting my fist yes and there's a really kind of great line that that in a lesser movie would have been played for laughs but he says you want this you want this story? You want misery? Eat it, you sick, twisted fuck! And and he starts jamming the the novel into her, the burning novel into her mouth. They're both getting burned. I mean, it is just one of the more savage, slightly realistic, yeah. I'm fairly realistic fights. The gun goes flying out of her robe, and she starts to scramble for it. And for one last time, Paul is going to hurt the audience with what he does with his legs. He grabs his sweats as she's running by and swings one of his legs into her legs, and she trips. And in another really grisly moment Annie falls and she 
hits her head on that iron, that metal royal typewriter in a sickening crack thud that I was just like, oh God. Now I'd seen this movie before and I expected this and I was worried I was going to be annoyed by it. This is the fake death in these movies. And I was like, I couldn't remember, does Annie have a pop scare here? Right. You know, often what happens when the slasher and the slasher films gets quote, uh, I use this a lot, gets killed. They leap up when they shouldn't later on. Right. Yeah. I, I was like, as I was watching it, I was like, is Annie going to do a slasher jump here? And is it going to really bother me? And she does. And it didn't. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, and I was like, Oh fuck, there she is. And uh, she and Paul have a, another mad, the last mad scramble. And he, he sees this, this, I, I'm sorry, this iron that's in the shape of a pig and he's scrambling for it. And they're having a fight and she, he, he finally gets a hold of it and he turns around and hits her in the forehead with it in another grisly moment. And we kind of see how beneath her skin, her skull is kind of fractured. I think that they were kind of trying to convey that with the, the, the way the skull really swells just at the area where the iron hit her mm. and she falls on him and he's won. What, what were your, what was your reaction to the, to the slasher jump scare? I, I agree with you because I think the reason that it works is that it is all earned. I see. Cause I mean, I guess this is what I would present. I don't have a problem with the slasher jump scare. Oh, no, I don't either. But sometimes it feels frightening yeah. and sometimes it feels cliched and obligatory. But when a film has worked and worked and worked and worked, it's kind of like the cherry on top. Yes. Uh, it, you actually want it there. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that that's what happens here because, because this movie has worked and worked and worked our nerves yeah. for, for this entire time in subtle ways, in very intense ways, yeah. you know, it, it's killed off a character that we, that we liked. It's given us false hope and, and it's done all of this in ways that uh, never, never tempted us to roll our eyes. Oh no, no. So, so that when this happens, the movie has placed us in a state, in an emotional state that we are ready to respond to it. Absolutely. I, I think, I think you're right. I'll put this to you and I'll, I'll have you comment on it. One of the reasons why this, this final act in their fight, I think works really well is because the fall on the typewriter is really abrupt, almost accidental. Yes. And at this point, I think we in the audience think Annie deserves a bit more of a stern comeuppance. Yeah. And so when she jumps on Paul as he's trying to crawl to a safer place in the house or just to be out of the room from Annie, it, the, the final blow gives us that yes moment, right? Yeah. And do you think that that's right? I I, I think so. And, and I think it's appropriate. Oh, I yeah. yeah. It's, totally, I, it's totally appropriate. This is an emotional movie. Yeah. And that's the best compliment that I can give because, a, you know, a horror movie like this, a suspense film, is yeah. supposed to manipulate your emotions. Oh, absolutely. When we, when we don't like a suspense film, when we don't like a horror film, because it didn't work. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that it does just make us go, oh, now you're going to try this. Yes. But this movie had succeeded on in everything that it tried to do and so this was just not only earned but appropriate and welcome now that's the end of Annie and Paul Sheldon has survived and the next scene I think is we see him hobbling to a publisher's office in uh, to a restaurant in New York City he and his agent are talking about his new book the education of uh, something 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 or other and she is praising him he's oh this book is getting all kinds of reviews and uh, and and it's they're going to be great the reviews are going to be great and Paul's like well that's kind of interesting uh, that's a change. And he just puts the book aside. And she's kind of confused at his uh, nonchalance at this, you know, because this is what he's always wanted, some kind of professional recognition of his, of his, of the quality of his writing. And he tells her, you know, things have changed a little bit for him. He wrote it for himself. He didn't write it for anybody else, which is an interesting point because you made the, you, 
which is an interesting thing to say because you made the point that he was writing for Annie and yeah. in many ways writing for all the fans of Misery. Yeah. And now he's now he's now he's written a novel for himself again. And so he doesn't really care what other people think of it. Right. And and in some ways is this is implied and they don't ever spell it out in the in the movie, but the experience with Annie has caused him to not care what critics or even in some ways what fans think of his work. Yeah. And then his agent says it's going to be really awful of me to ask this, but have you thought about turning what happened to you in that cabin into a novel? Yeah. And he has a funny line about that. It's, oh, you want me to, you want to turn uh, the most harrowing experience of my life into, into profit? And she's like, yeah, something like that. And he kind of talks about, as, he, as he's watching some wait, some member of the wait staff walk towards him, he talks about how he always sometimes sees Annie. Sometimes he thinks that he sees her. And, and in fact, the person walking towards him is Annie. He, he's suffering some kind of post-traumatic stress i think yeah a, a hallucination yeah and uh it looks like annie and then and then suddenly but but he doesn't react in fear it's almost no, like no. this has happened we get the sense and the film does not have to spell this out that paul is experiencing these hallucinations pretty frequently yes and so he's not really panicked by them and he's probably tired of them yes yes finally when when the waitress stops it's not annie and she but she does say something that annie would say and she yeah, says yeah. aren't you paul sheldon i'm your number Number one fan. And he just in a very James Conn kind of way says that that's sweet of you. Paul Sheldon will never react to those words with anything like enthusiasm again in his life. Well, but see, but see, that's where and and that's kind of the ending is kind of in some ways a happy one. Yeah, yeah. But we also get the sense that this is how Paul's gonna interact with people from now on. Well, I mean, I think and, that that's that's what makes it such a powerful movie because there is a reality in that reaction. There's a he doesn't just go on with his life like nothing happened there are costs to these kinds of encounters to surviving them yes and you know you don't you don't get off scot-free after something like that uh, him more than most i mean he's the character of paul sheldon probably has is going to have trouble walking for the rest of his life because of what annie did to him uh and in the in the book too the legs aren't very well set he has to have them rebroken after the after after he leaves annie's tender mercies now there is a way in which the novel and the movie are radically different much of the the climax plays out the way it does in the book but before Paul sets his trap he takes the Misery Lives manuscript and hides it Paul actually thinks it's the best in the book Paul comes to think that this may be the best book he's ever written really really and and it kind of pains him to admit this because Annie is a big part of that her editorial eye her knowledge of Misery helped him make the great novel that this great Misery novel okay and then he he takes a stack of those papers from the from the from the from the almost from the envelope and he sets those down it's not really his manuscript that he burns but really really so he saved the novel and it becomes a huge bestseller and that's sort of what they talk about at dinner he and his agent like how weird it is that that annie helped him write this great novel but anyway it becomes a massive bestseller wow. and he brings and he brings misery back with this with this novel and yeah. and that actually kind of works for the reader because we do get a lot of the misery lives novel as we're reading misery the book and it sounds like a great novel actually and I don't like gothic romance but I was like this this, this book cooks and uh, and so that's a key difference in the between the movie and the book I don't know necessarily why they changed that I don't I'm not bothered by the change no that's interesting I actually would not have I mean I kind of thought that that you know um you know is, is he really going to be proud of what he's doing yeah um but I don't know I mean do you think that 
that they decided not to do that in the script because they didn't like that idea or because they thought that um, it would just be too difficult to convey that with the kind of exposition style doing, which, which well, is very I, effective. I think to do that, you would have had to have added a lot more about, we would have had to see a lot more of the Misery novel somehow brought onto the screen. And I think the reason why they changed it is because they didn't pay, in the script they shot with, they didn't pay enough into that, that storyline to justify it at the end. Okay. You know, I think what is justified in that in this movie is what happens, which I, I sense that he probably rewrote the novel that she burned and that it okay. came out pretty well. That's what I think happened in this movie. But in the book, he was not satisfied with that novel. And they kind of convey that a little bit when she says, what's it about? And he says, I don't know. Maybe you'll come up with a title. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he wasn't satisfied with it. And some, and, and he's, he's got quite a conflicted relationship with the new Misery novel because of the, this experience. Anyway, that's the difference in the book. And I, 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 I think that, I think the movie does, I think the movie does what it should have done, actually. I guess that's what I mean to say in answer to your question. That's how I feel. I mean, I, you know, not having read the book though, I mean, but I still, I still, I'm, I'm very happy with what we're given yeah. because, because also th there's something, there's something tragic about the fact that I think that, um, I think that in the film we're to imply or, or to assume that he tried to recreate the novel about his youth. Yes. But he'll never get to enjoy it because really the rest of his life oh, yeah. will always be colored by this experience and by this now conflicted relationship with adulation. That's a great point. And the novel was about a couple things. Stephen King's most unpleasant fans. Yeah. And the other thing it was about was Stephen King's issues with addiction, which he only recently actually said. Um, but Stephen King had a, a huge problem uh, at, at the time he was writing this novel, I guess, and he uh, with 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 drugs and alcohol. And so this novel is a little bit about that struggle. I think that's a great point that you made. His relationship with adulation, adulation has changed forever. Right. Um, and I think that's really well conveyed, as you just as you pointed out, when that waitress says, "Oh, I'm your number one fan," and and there's just James Khan's expression on his face is like he's going to be polite, but it's also conveying to the viewer of the audience he's not happy about this at all but he's he's also going to roll with it oh yeah which is which is what he did with with her yes with yeah. Annie. and so it's almost like this is now a habit that he's going to i mean he's not tied to a bed yeah but this is now something that he's going to do from this moment forward and i would like to say i the score is very effective the score was composed by uh mark uh, shyman who mm -hmm. i don't think it has done a lot of other major films but uh but it's very effective to heighten the tension uh, you know, he sticks to a certain number of motifs. I, I do notice there's even some moments where there's like some chimes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that almost sound kind of like childish. Yes, yes, yes. Might which might be kind of a statement about Annie's kind of kind of dangerous childish nature. It's kind of a Jerry Goldsmith type score who yes. is very good at doing uh, uh, horror scores. Uh, actually, he did um, The Omen, which we've reviewed. He did Alien. He did Planet of the Apes, and I I kind of felt like that if you take away the kind of the avant-garde kind of modernistic touches to the score for Alien. Yeah, yeah. Goldsmith's score for Alien. Misery's a lot like that, only a little bit more traditional. Just really effective, and I just uh, wanted to kind of mention that. The verdict. Folks, if you've come this far with us, we've probably telegraphed what the verdict is already. This is a terrible movie and you should never watch it. Um, Obviously that's not the verdict. This is I don't know, this is, I think this is one of the most effective horror, uh, thriller movies I've ever seen. Um, It has a unique villain who isn't evil 
she isn't good, but this is a person who has a lot of psychological problems. Um, and so I think that that, that makes her uh, kind of a unique, not sympathetic villain, but somebody who you can... Whose, whose behavior is uh, enhances the believability of this piece of filmmaking. Um, this doesn't feel like fantastical filmmaking to me. This doesn't feel like something that couldn't happen. There's an element of realism that kind of goes through the entire film that I think lends itself to, to uh, highly emotional viewing in the viewer. If you like being tortured while watching a film, if you like being on the edge of your seat, this is a, this is a movie you want to pick and watch with a couple friends in a dark room where everybody's going to shut the fuck up up and watch the movie and just give themselves over to the experience of this thriller. I, I think it's a, it, I think it's a, it's a great interpretation of a Stephen King work. It's not a perfect adaptation of the work, but I think you should see it, audience. I, I hope I haven't stepped on your verdict's toes, Jason. Not at all. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll add and enhance what you said. I, I'm in agreement with everything that you said. I, this is a perfect movie. I, I, I actually, I, I have no complaints about this movie. One of the things that is so admirable about this movie is that you have, uh, you have a very small cast who all deliver note-perfect performance. You have uh, a, a story that is told with great subtlety. You have uh, and especially after uh, uh, listeners will know that we just did the uh, legendary pictures uh, monster verse in which uh, dialogue is horrendous and character development is an afterthought. This is the this is the absolute opposite where uh, all of the, of the dialogue and, and exposition are just so natural and perfectly done and and the performances are so deep, and and the use of the camera in 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 in, in crafting these these close-ups that bring us who are watching this film into the psychology of what's going on with these characters. This is this is one of the most deeply engrossing horror movies you will ever watch. It is edge of your seat. You will have teeth marks on your on your fingers or your or whatever it is that you bite. Maybe a a, a wooden splint when you watch the. Uh, the, the harrowing scenes of the hobbling. The music is great. Everything about this movie is great. We have reviewed some really, really great horror movies. Uh, um, I, I'm i really tempted to say that this is best, that, that this is um, one of the top two films that we've even reviewed. Yes. Because I cannot think of one bad thing to say about this movie. I, I could not, I could not recommend it more. I, I, I could watch it again tonight when we're done here and be just as, as, as thrilled and on the edge of my seat as I was when I watched it the first time or a few days ago. Um, this is great cinema, folks. It does not really get much better than this. Watch this movie. And that's the verdict. Jason, what, pray tell, shall we be reviewing next? You know, why the hell not? Why don't we, uh, you know, watch the, uh, do another series? Okay. Let's say, let's say the, the, uh, the back-to-back G.I. Joe films that they made, oh, about a decade ago. How does that sound to you? Sounds good to me. It sounds like we will be continuing our trek through amazingly finely crafted cinema. That's what I'm hoping for too. Let's find out together. <laughs> Jason really went all in on selling us that 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 duology. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Folks, share us on social media, share us on the Facebooks, the Twitters, the uh, Instagrams, uh, wherever you share podcasts or listen, uh, wherever you share things, share us. Text us to your friends. Um, Jason, are you watching anything that people need to watch? Oh, no, not. I've been too busy. I'm afraid. All right. I am watching and I'm finally, I finally turned the corner on Mayor of Easttown, which is a series starring Kate Winslet on HBO. I was on the <laughs> 
Finn's. I haven't seen the final episode, but I hear it's great. I would recommend you guys watch that. I think that's a really good series. I've always liked Kate Winslet, so that's where I was at. So I wanted to give it a shot. Boy, it delivers. All right, night, guys. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how fun those are going to be.